This episode of Tales from the Backlog is brought to you, as always, by the wonderful patrons over at patreon.com slash realdavejackson. Some personal heroes of mine, like Chris Nelson, the top three podcast crew, Zulgeek, Eric Guess, Rick Firestone, Nick Vicori, Jill, Soccer, ZNA, Cupcake, Kyle, Christian S., Matt, a.k.a. Stormageddon, JD, Doug Leaf, Jason Emery, Rob Shack, Brian Skersha, Randall, Jake Martin, Jenny E., and a new patron will welcome in Snack Taku to the Patreon. Thank you, Snack Taku. And many more have all chosen to support the show by going to patreon.com slash realdavejackson and kicking a few bucks a month my way. Your support is always appreciated, and if you're listening and you want to support the show like them, get your name read out loud, have my undying love and respect, and all that jazz. Once again, that's patreon.com slash realdavejackson. And with all that being said, it's time to accept the truth. Hello, everybody. My name is Dave Jackson, and you're listening to Tales from the Backlog. This is a video games review podcast where each week I'm joined by a guest to bring a game out of the backlog, play it, and discuss. My guests today are friends of the show, longtime friends of the show, returning from many past episodes, and they're both here today to accept the truth. First of all, the host of Pixel Project Radio, Rick Firestone. Welcome back, Rick. Hey, Dave. It's good to be here. And we're also joined today by the host of the Unlockables podcast, Eric Guess. Eric, welcome back. Thank you so much, Dave. And thank you for allowing me to use your podcast as my summer vacation home once again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you make a mess of it every time, Eric. <laughs> there's no cleaning fees, so I, I don't, there's no incentive. <laughs> yep, yep. I, I got to write that in there somewhere. Uh, Long time listeners of the show will recognize both of these voices from many past episodes. Like I said, uh, Rick was a guest on... Disco Elysium, Yakuza Like a Dragon, 13 Sentinels, Final Fantasy IX, and Catherine Full Body. I think those are all of them. And Eric was on Metroid Dread, Undertale, and of course, the one and only Stranger of Paradise, Final Fantasy Origin. So I am super happy to have you guys back on the show today. Both of you have uh, really excellent shows, Pixel Project Radio and The Unlockables. Uh, On each show, There's been much Final Fantasy content, so it's good to have you here. Uh, We'll talk about both of those podcasts before the spoiler break, but today we're going to talk about Final Fantasy 16, which is an action game developed and published by Square Enix for PS5 in 2023. If you haven't played Final Fantasy 16, uh, don't worry because we're not going to spoil the story for you before that spoiler break I mentioned. You can check down in the show notes for a timestamp for when that spoiler break happens. Until that point, we're going to dance around story stuff, including like very early but very impactful story stuff. So no worries if you haven't played. Let's give some elevator pitches for Final Fantasy 16 if people haven't played. 
Uh, I wrote that this, I took, I think I took the easy elevator pitch again. It's the perks of being the host of the show. I say it's Game of Thrones meets Final Fantasy meets Devil May Cry. What would you guys say? Rick, I'll let you go first. Ah, smart. Let the let the fellow with nothing written down go first. That's a good strategy. I was just following the order of the doc. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was just following orders. Yeah. Where have I heard that before? Um, <laughs> um, you know, th- this game represents another iteration of the Final Fantasy series trying to reinvent itself and take new avenues of risk. Uh, whether or not that works for you is ultimately going to depend on what you come to the series for. But uh, a, a, just a super brief pitch about this game is it's the game's first foray into trying to commit to be an action game and the game's first foray into a true M-rated title. Mm-hmm. Other other than that, I you know I think that gets into more of the meat of the story. So I will I will leave it at that. I think. All right, and Eric. Yeah, I just wrote really quick. I said a newer and more direction, a newer and more mature direction for the legendary game series that is loved by some, hated by others. And there's nothing more Final Fantasy than that. And we're just a little bit outside of my wheelhouse because the one true Lord and Savior, Tetsuya Nomura, was not included in this one, at least not directly. Mm -hmm. So but uh, yeah, like like Rick said, it's kind of a a new kind of a fresh start for the series, uh, kind of trying some things that have never been done before. Mm-hmm. And we'll see for better or worse whether or not those things worked or those things don't. But like I said, people are going to love it or hate it regardless because that's what Final Fantasy is, baby. Yep, exactly. Um, at the time of recording, this game is only available on PS5. There's a PC port on the way, and then who knows where it will end up in the future. But uh, we all played this on PS5. This took me 45 hours to complete, and that is... Uh, pretty much main pathing it for about at least the last half of the game. I skipped almost every side quest in the last half. So pretty long main story in this game. How long did it take you guys? I was about at the same time. I was about, I think maybe 50 hours because I have really bad OCD and I wanted to get rid of all the quest marker icons just to, just to see what they had to offer. So yeah, after about 50 hours, I got through the main story and then I am in the middle of a playthrough on final fantasy mode, which is the, kind of hard mode new game plus version that they have in there so i've gotten about halfway through that and maybe i can add a little bit of discourse when we get to talking about some of that stuff yeah sure you know my my play my play clock is not reliable at all Uh, i've fallen into the habit of just going into the game pausing and then like walking away getting other stuff done (laughs) so my my play clock is at like 90 hours and that's not that's not right at all i if i had to guess i would say probably 55 hours or so maybe 58 um i did go really hard on the side quests towards the end of the game um mid end of the game so i i think 55 to 58 would be right gotcha yeah so um just kind of in conclusion there not a short game I mean, even longer than a lot of other games in the Final Fantasy series. So buckle up for that if you're thinking about playing it. Um, At the top of the show, we always start by giving our histories with the game. And then, of course, we got to give a little history with the Final Fantasy series. But like I said, Rick and Eric have both been on the show before for Final Fantasy games. So we have talked about the series. Uh, So, Rick, I'll kick to you first um, a little kind of refresh on your history with Final Fantasy. And then what was it that made you want to play 16? Sure. So uh, Final Fantasy IX was the first game of the series that I ever played as a kid. It's largely what got me into more of the story-driven video game experience. Um, 
all through high school and college, you know, I was really big into seven, eight, nine, and ten, and ten two, um, and then got into the earlier entries later on. What made me want to play this? Uh, this is the first Final Fantasy game that uh, released at a time when I was both playing video games and old enough to kind of purchase them myself. Mm-hmm. The the one before this, Final Fantasy 15, released in 2016, I believe. And at that time, the only video games that were playing, you know, I was replaying all of the games from my childhood, and that's really it. Um, so I was really excited to buy this. Uh, pre-ordered it, played the demo before it released, picked it up on day one, and here we are. Mm-hmm. And Eric? Yeah, my history actually mirrors Rick's pretty close. I think that's why we became friends in the first place, because I, too, uh, experienced the series first through Final Fantasy IX that was... Uh, the catalyst for a lot of my love of the series of of RPGs and really to this day is still one of my favorite games of all time. And since then, I've gone back and played every single numbered title since seven, excluding the online ones. I don't know if we're like counting those long mainline series, but I uh, haven't played the online ones, but I've played every other numbered title uh, seven onward, including some of the spinoffs, Type Zero, Crystal Chronicles. We had a couple of those in there. Stranger Paradise, uh, shout mm-hmm. out. Mm-hmm. The, the best Final Fantasy game, of course. <laughs> And uh, I'm probably more famously known or infamously known for um, you know, I've played Kingdom Hearts, which is the other series from Square Enix and and been on a very, very extensive journey to catalog that entire series on my show. So uh, I love Square Enix. They're one of my favorite developers, favorite publishers. Uh, their games hold a very special place in my heart. So, you know, I think if you're a fan of Final Fantasy at this point, regardless of whether you loved or hated the last couple of titles, you see a mainline Final Fantasy game come out and you're like, yeah, I got to check that out. So the hype around this game uh, building up to release was was incredible. And I think we all were just like, yeah, we're going to get this and play it. And, and we all kind of played it together in our little podcast community at the same time. Yeah, um, this this game really made an impression, especially when that demo dropped, that the demo for, for this game was probably one of the most impressive demos I've ever played. It was just perfectly paced. It introduced the combat. It left you on a, one hell of a story cliffhanger. So... I was already like going to play 16, like kind of like Rick, I, I've, I, I consider myself a fan of the series, but I've never been like on like the release. I think the last one I bought at release was 13. And before that I had never bought one on release. So when that demo dropped and was the way it was and generated all that hype, it was like, okay, I was going to buy this, but now I'm like, I'm going to buy it on the way home from work on the day it releases like that. I've said it before on the show, but I consider myself a fan of the Final Fantasy series, despite only liking about half of the games that I've played in the series, which is a lot of games, to be fair. I've played, by my count, maybe 12 or 13 of them now. So to say I only like six or seven of them is still a lot of games that I like. So it was kind of like a foregone conclusion almost that I was going to play this. It was just that demo that got me to buy it on day one. And um, to get into some quick opening thoughts here before we dive into the game itself, uh, I, I think that this game did not maintain the momentum that that demo set up, in my opinion. This, to me, stood out as like a shining example of everything that AAA is and everything that people love about AAA games and everything that people hate about AAA games is in Final Fantasy XVI. Uh, The highs of this game were really, really, really high. Some of the coolest shit I've ever seen in a video game is in this game. And some of the most boring sections of a video game that I've ever played are also in this game. So 
I, I left with it like kind of disappointed, but I don't think this game is like, it's not terrible, not a bad game or anything. I just like, I don't know. Since I finished it, I finished it a couple weeks ago at least, and it's aged pretty poorly since then in my memory. I don't think it's a game I'll ever go back and, and replay. So that's kind of my quick opening spiel here. Uh, Eric, how about you? Yeah, I agree with a lot of what you said, and a lot of the criticism is warranted. I think I probably have an unfairly positive view of everything Square puts out just because of how much I love them and kind of blinded by nostalgia. So I'll probably be a little more favorable on this game uh, than you guys. So I'm appreciative that uh, you guys' critical eye will kind of keep me in check here. But I absolutely <laughs> agree with you guys, uh, or with you, Dave. The, the The highs that this game strives to achieve and does achieve are insane it's some of the most intense sequences in in games i think you'll ever come across but uh you do crash down to devastatingly low lows to the point where like the game almost feels like it's it's standing still and well at the time i feel like i really appreciated that it's a chance to breathe after these incredible cinematic action sequences that we got uh not everybody is gonna tolerate that and accept it the way that i did so uh i think in terms of just products that square enix has put out lately uh, they've had some misses with Forspoken, with Marvel's Avengers, but in terms of like their pillars, their, their big three, uh, we've had r- recent success with those titles in Seven Remake, Kingdom Hearts 3, and now Final Fantasy 16 being like complete games compared to the chopped up mess that 15 was or yeah. how flat 13 kind of felt. So in terms of like their main products, in terms of like a triple A AAA package, like it, it's a it's a very well made game and stands it stands pretty good uh, up against what they put out recently. But yeah, this game is kind of all over the place. And we're going to talk about that, I'm sure. Yep. Yeah, that's well said. I um, I, I think I might be cooler on it than both of you. But, you know, for, for me, this game, it's a perfectly fine video game. I just don't think it's a good Final Fantasy game. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is going to come back to what I said at the beginning. Um, it ultimately depends on what you're looking for in the series and in a game experience. For me, this this game is trying to do and be too many things, and ultimately it doesn't succeed wholly in, in any of them. It writes so many checks that mm. the game fundamentally cannot cash uh, mechanically, narratively, and and etc. Um, I, I, this is going to really sound damning, but it reminds me a little bit of how I felt with Detroit Become Human. Um, to be clear, the writing in that game is far worse than 16s. <laughs> like, like I'm not, I'm not making a direct comparison here. But once you look past the presentation and the spectacle with Detroit Become Human, it was the the really beautiful graphics, and with 16, it's it's the absolute uh, buffet, the cornucopia that is their visual presentation and the spectacle upon which the game lives and and dies. Once you look beyond that. I think it's bereft of a lot of the things that make the series special and make JRPGs special. Um, well, I actually, I misspoke. This game's not a JRPG. I mean, we can come out and say it. It, it just yeah. isn't. I said um, it at the top of the show. I said, this is an action game. I didn't, yeah, didn't even try to say it was an RPG because it's, it, it's not. Settle down, slugger. I wasn't accusing you. <laughs> whoa, whoa. <laughs> no, not, not combating you or just kind of just referencing the top of the show. No, we could fight. It's fine. All right. All right. Let's I'll go. referee it if you guys want to go. I mean, it's fine. Um, but yeah, I, I just tying up my my sentiment in a bow. It's it's a fine video game. I don't like it as a Final Fantasy game. That's that's all. 
And I think to just kind of add to Rick's point, uh, this game, the hype building up around this game, I think this game was burdened and saddled with a lot of expectations because it was supposed to be like this fresh start, this new start for Final Fantasy, right? After the kind of disaster that 15 was and kind of like how the lukewarm reception of, of 13. And I think there was even more expectations on it when it was discovered that Yoshi P was heading it up because of the great work he did kind of saving Final Fantasy 14. So mm-hmm. I think in terms of the re- like just on top of the regular hype that normal Final Fantasy titles have, this was seen by a lot of people as like, oh, this is going to like save and reinvigorate the the franchise. So it had a lot of those expectations on it going into it as well. Yeah. And I, I kind of agree with Rick that this is not it doesn't feel like a Final Fantasy game to me. But the the reason for that is not the reason for me personally is not the reason that everyone was yelling on social media about about how it's an it's an action game and Final Fantasy can't be an action. That's bullshit. The reason that I say that this isn't a Final Fantasy game is it's it's not an RPG. And that's like integral to my definition, my personal definition and expectation for a game titled Final Fantasy, if that makes sense. And I think, too, when when we say it's not a Final Fantasy game, I, I think it, it in some ways that's misspeaking on my part as well, because what I mean by that is there are thematic through lines and presentation through lines throughout the first, oh, I don't know, at the very least nine, but maybe 10, maybe even 11 games that are are similar with each other, right? They're 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 compatible with with each other and 16 chose to break away from all of that that being said though they've been experimenting since 11 yeah. so it's not like this is new so i perhaps saying that it's not a final fantasy game perhaps that's i mean a platitude trite call it whatever you want but i i think our justifications are sound right it doesn't fundamentally feel like a game that this uh, studio has been putting out under the moniker Final Fantasy for years and years and years. Whether that's to your liking or not, well, who can say? Uh, I'll tell you who can say. We can say because we're doing the podcast. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think, too, to kind of add to your points, and it's we're not living in a world where like an action game can't be an RPG. I think that, uh, you know, I hate to bring everything back to Kingdom Hearts, but I have to. Kingdom Hearts is an action game that has a very robust RPG system, especially the the third entry kind of being a culmination of everything they've worked on. And I think, and I'm sure this won't be the first time this comes up, I, I think the marriage of the action and RPG systems in 7 Remake is is really like the best version that Square has put out of that recently so far. And, and they're, they're on this quest to have Final Fantasy be more action-oriented and be more flashy. And I think 7 Remake with the way you can switch characters and it kind of incorporates the ATB bar into like the real time action was incredible the way they did that. And when you stand 16's system up next to that, it's just there's no comparison. Yeah. One of the I mean, Eric, you and I on this very podcast talked about Stranger of Paradise with (laughs) another game with Final Fantasy in the title that is an action RPG. Both of those things are extremely prevalent in that game as well. Has one of the best job systems ever. Yeah, it's 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 fantastic. If anyone listening, if you haven't listened to that episode, go listen to it. Go play Stranger of Paradise so you can go into the spoiler section because Eric uh, blacked out and gave a a big long speech that was incredible in that oh. episode. So, uh, yeah, um, not to belabor this point here, but I I do think this is you know part of the conversation surrounding this game, um, and I I kind of like had a similar feeling that like this 
you know, not my Final Fantasy, but not for the same reason that people were yelling on on Twitter about. So let's uh, let's listen to a little bit of music. When we come back, we're going to dive into the story setup and the world building in this game. So in Final Fantasy 16, we have a brand new world as is, you know, per usual for the series. And um, well, I guess this is one of the things that would make it a Final Fantasy game, reinventing setting characters, systems, all of that. Uh, It is set in the world of Valisthea, again, new for this game, built around uh, the magic of crystals, another through line throughout the series. Although in this game, they are these giant, they're mountains, basically. Uh, called the Mother Crystals, was like the basis of all the magic in the land, and kingdoms have sprung up around these crystals. They are all uh, basically vying for uh, land and control. These are what grant the kingdoms their power, basically. Uh, Any kingdom or duchy or whatever, you know, medieval noun they assign to these places that doesn't have their own crystal is just not going to be a big power player uh, in this land. I think that this world building setup is really, really cool, uh, especially when it was introduced. Like, this is how this world works. This is how the politics are set up. This is what gives countries their power. Um, It also kind of introduces the uh, Game of Thrones or other types of fantasy where, like, you know, the kingdoms that have these magical artifacts or something like that, that's what gives them their power. And then they're jostling for control amongst each other. you know, as the the history of the world plays out. I thought this was super cool. It brought me in almost immediately. What did you guys think? I would have preferred it if they leaned harder into this throughout the entire game. It kind of gets abandoned. I mean, what, about halfway, 60% of the way through? Yeah. I, I was really invested. I get really invested when uh, political happenings in games affect the story directly. And I was really excited for that up up throughout the whole beginning. And then they they just kind of abandon it. I mean, there's no there's no better word for it to do some JRPG stuff. Oh, I, I agree with you, to be clear. Yeah, I, I was in it at the beginning when they first introduced it. I was like, this is extremely cool. I like this this setup, this world building. They it's very creative. I enjoyed it a lot. And then, like you said, 50, 60% of the way through, you never hear about most of this stuff ever again. Yeah, I'm kind of in the same boat as you guys. I think the way they set up the world at the beginning and they have this, they have so much opportunity to where you're like the politics of this world and the maneuvering for the political power and the, and the power to control these crystals makes for a very tantalizing story. And and a lot of that lore is built into the game because you have the active time lore system. You're able to pause during cutscenes and see like, what exactly is going on and it offers mm-hmm. you a little bit of history about like what happened why this world is the way it is and yeah i i was super drawn into that i was like yes if if this final fantasy is able to kind of toe the line between like their normal crazy final fantasy stuff and this like political world that would be super interesting because you know i know we have the comparison to, to game of thrones and 
the, the way that show ended was regrettable and, and frankly awful the way they ended <laughs> that show. But the first six or so seasons of that show was, was really, really engrossing because of that exact reason, the politics and the way the power structure of that world was, was being created. Um, and so, yeah, it, the, the, the game does take a turn about 50% of the way through to where it's like, okay, cool. All this world building and all this stuff was set up, but now, you know, God's kind of here. So we kind of have to like figure out how we're going to kill God, yep. which I'm all for. You guys know me. I'm, I'm a junkie for that stuff. Like anytime we were able to kill God, like count me in. I'm, I'm totally for it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I did. And I, I appreciate that. I love that. I want that. My final fantasy story. Right. But same thing with you guys. When those, those credits rolled, I was like, man, I wish we could have spent a little more time with like the, the inner workings and the machinations of this world around the power structures it kind of, it tried to set up. Yep. I want to give a little bit more detail about those power structures and kind of like more of that world building. Um, Cause I think that it's, I mean, just to give a little sense of like the things that they abandoned along the way uh, to like, like we said, go after some JRPG bullshit. Um, so a couple other things about it. There is a blight that's spreading across the land. Uh, we're not sure what causes it at the beginning, um, but as the blight starts to make territory uninhabitable, you know, fuck with agriculture, you know, things that blights do, the right. major powers start grabbing for more territory, which causes conflict between them. Um, and the way that they, you know, fight each other is really interesting, too. Uh, they are in control of these super soldiers. Uh, they are called bearers and dominance. Bearers are people who can use magic in this world. And a really interesting setup to them is that because they can use magic, they are enslaved as soldiers uh, most of the time. Most of the countries do this. And I, I thought it was really interesting that in this world, basically the more powerful people um, are often kept as slave soldiers, basically. It's a cool world-building idea. And again, it's of great importance in the plot in the early game. And then again, it's it's abandoned at some point, just like the rest of this kind of low-level stuff is. The other part of this is uh, the dominance, who are uh, the people who command the power of the icons, their traditional Final Fantasy summons. And they are incredibly powerful. They can transform into these icons one of the early scenes in the prologue shows a big fight between Titan and Shiva. Uh, Titan is like a colossus on the battlefield. And then Shiva is, uh, if you played Final Fantasy, you know, you know, using the ice magic and stuff. They're basically nuclear bombs. They're the, the same effect, uh, but they are people. And again, sometimes they hold great power, sometimes enslaved, just like the bearers. Um, I think this, you know, dynamic here is another cool part of the world building and the way that these countries operate. What I especially liked about that too, um, and I don't think this is a spoiler, uh, but you know, Dave, if it is, you could, you could always cut this entirely is that the, the positions of power that the, some of the folks who are dominance find themselves in, it's not to worship the dominance themselves. It's to worship the icons essentially. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's very cool. That does play into the plot. And, you know, I'm not going to say more for for spoilers sake, but I think that is is very cool as well. And I was kind of grabbed, too, by the the world that this story set up, because I, I don't know about you guys, but I just kind of immediately saw a lot of parallels to like the world that we're constantly living in. Right. Bears are are ostracized because they're different uh, and they have this ability to wield magic and 
just kind of reminded me of like the struggles we're still fighting for for people that are marginalized groups in our own world, uh, you know, fighting for fair treatment of them. And then the same thing with the blight, how how the blight is is spreading across the land. And, you know, I, I was just thinking about the the water crisis they're having out west or any of the stuff like that. I was just thinking in terms of like our own world. And that was really brought to the forefront while I was playing this game. So not to like get political or, or real world droopy on, on your show, but I, I just couldn't help but kind of realizing those parallels were were kind of frighteningly similar to to some of the stuff we were going through today. Yeah, the blight is a real like global warming parallel. Yeah. Um, yeah. Not to mention the whole aspect of, you know, bearers and well, no, not dominance, just bearers. Uh, essentially being slaves uh, that was a that was a pretty big talking point when this game first dropped Mm -hmm. and i mean not not one that like i I guess i'm privileged to say like not one that particularly bothered me i thought they were using it for a really interesting purpose uh, in the story it forms a a central like driving part of the plot Uh, what's going on with the bearers how you're going to help them out and then again no real resolution to that unfortunately it's kind of a unique twist on final fantasy though because normally i might shoot myself in the foot here saying this like normally people with like magic or stuff are not usually ostracized like that in the final fantasy world and this is like really the first time where we see them where it's like they are heavily downtrodden put under the yoke of people that aren't able to to do that ability just to make their lives easier I mean, I guess you can make parallels with like, you know, Final Fantasy IX, the Black Mages, and they were made for war and all that kind of stuff. But mm-hmm. I think this is the first time where it really kind of hammers home the the abuse that people that could use magic were put under. Um, in the game, you play as Clive Rossfield, who is the firstborn son of a noble house, uh, House Rosaria. Clive himself is a bearer. Uh, so that, again, that means he can use magic and in most societies he would be a slave, but he's from a noble family. So instead of being a slave, he is just shit on mercilessly by everybody except for his dad and his brother. Uh, his mom is a real, uh, you know what to him. Um, Joshua, his brother is the dominant of the icon Phoenix, but Joshua is a little kid. So he's not, you know, like a weapon of war quite yet. Uh, so Clive is his shield bearer, his protector, basically, to keep him safe until he gets old enough to go out and, you know, kill droves of soldiers on the battlefield or be used for, you know, power purposes, whatever the uh, whatever the house demands or the country. Um, we are going to yada, yada, yada until you team up with a couple of other characters who will form your main uh, party throughout the game. You meet Sid, uh, who is a guy who gives shelter to bearers and keeps them safe, uh, kind of creates a safe place for them. Uh, a man with the deepest voice I've ever heard, probably uh, this <laughs> this side of like Barry White, maybe uh, Jill, who's a childhood friend of Clive's. And of course, Torgal, who is the best boy and a direct Game of Thrones dire wolf uh, analog. So Torgal is the best friend for them. That's all I want to say about the plot for now, but I think we do have a lot of things to talk about about the story in here. Um, I just brought up the characters. I brought up Joshua, Clive, Sid, Jill, Torgal. How do we feel about our main group in this game? Characters are a big part of the Final Fantasy series, a big part of RPGs in general. How do we feel? I I, I think about half of them are just poorly written and not good characters to be quite frank. Mm-hmm. Um some some of them are. I mean, and there are some flat characters too that are that are really cool like uh like Gav and Sid. 
I mean, they're, they don't experience a ton of change throughout the plot. Well, maybe Gab does, but they don't experience a ton of change throughout the plot, but they're still very cool characters and enjoyable to be around. Um, but you know, Clive, I, I couldn't tell you much about Clive if you asked me. I mean, I, I don't think he's a particularly interesting character. We don't get to, you know, I think back to Final Fantasy VIII more and more these days. For all the faults that that game has, we got to see Squall's inner thoughts and inner monologues all the time about how he doesn't feel like he is good enough to be a leader. He's incredibly self-conscious. He's kind of an anti-protagonist in that way. Um, with Clive, we don't really get that. He's just doing protagonist good boy things. And I mean, Jill, I, I thought the accounts of her, uh, character writing were exaggerated at first, but man, I, she is practically a nothing character. And that's, that's kind of a shame because she's extremely important, but yeah, I don't know. I, it's about 50, 50 for me. Yeah, I don't I don't want people to jump all over Rick uh because if you they're going to jump all over Rick, they're going to jump all over me too cuz I agree. I think I think Jill is basically a cardboard cutout of a person. Well, hold on, who's doing the jumping? Yeah, well, do you want them to <laughs> jump? I'll let them jump. I, I maybe uh, reach out to me directly. Uh Pixel Project. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> sorry, we'll meet in sorry, a parking Dave. lot and fight about it. That's okay. Yeah. So. No, I I agree. Um like I said, I I think Jill is meant to be an important character, one that you're supposed to feel things for and um, that you're supposed to feel certain ways about things that happen with her later in the story. And I, I, I didn't, she's just, you know, she's just kind of there in a lot of scenes. It feels like they needed a, a, to use a sports term, they needed a warm body to fill scenes and occupy a kind of character role. Uh, that's how I felt about Jill. Sid is charismatic, but I, again, I, I don't really care about Sid um, I enjoyed Clive, I enjoyed Joshua, and of course I enjoyed Torgal. I'm not a monster, uh, but you know, as as dogs go in games. When we talk about combat, well, you know, I'll take some points away from Torgal. But uh, as far as being a helpful good boy, and there are some scenes where I think uh, the bond between Torgal and Clive and Joshua is is really good, uh, actually, and uh, serves a purpose. But I, I'm with you on some of the characters. There are characters you're meant to feel a lot for, and I felt absolutely nothing for. I think in terms of character, you know, this game is is different than a lot of Final Fantasy games because it is, first and foremost, uh, at its core, Clive's story and Clive's story alone, pretty much. Whereas, like, past Final Fantasy games, you've had a party of characters that you're able to swap in and out that you've had, like, more direct control over. It's like you never have control over anybody other than Clive. So the entire story has to take place through his eyes, through playing through him, and everyone else is just kind of there for his character and kind of move it along. Um, I thought Clive was fine. I didn't mind it. And again, take my words with a grain of salt because my favorite character of all time is Sora, the most anime protagonist good boy you're ever going to find in a video game. So, (laughs) um, But I I thought Clive was more compelling, a more compelling FF protagonist than we've gotten uh, in recent times, I didn't really have any kind of connection to, to Lightning. I didn't really particularly like her character. And Noctis, I, I, I like 15 more, more than most people, but I think Noctis's defining character traits are through his relationship with that core group. That is the strength of 15. That's not, uh, uh, you know, praising Noctis's character in a, of itself. It's praising that core group of characters like together. Um, so I, I thought Clive was at least a little more compelling than, than a, a protagonist we've gotten 
and, and from, from recent Final Fantasy games. Uh, in terms of Jill, I, I'm a little softer on Jill as well because I, I agree with you guys. Like towards the end, she kind of gets like put on the shelf, and I, I don't agree with the way that happened. But there's a po- there's a point in the game where like it looks like she's getting ready to go on like a very like compelling character arc where she's able to kind of like right some of the wrongs of her past and confront trauma that she underwent. Uh, uh, and and Clive, it's very f- uh, clear through Clive and his story that he gets the opportunity to confront his trauma as well. So I was like, oh, they're affording Jill like the same rights as, as Clive in this story. Uh, but then, yeah, once we kind of take that Final Fantasy Killing God turn, she kind of just like is only there to like move Clive's motivations along. So, yeah, I think there's an interesting conversation there. Uh, I love Sid. I thought he was a badass. He was super cool. He's probably my favorite Sid in Final Fantasy other than Frog Sid uh, because Frog Sid is... <laughs> absolutely undefeated and his intro is just so so cool ralph innocent his voice is just i want him to like narrate my life like please and if we get dlc please make it sid dlc because i want more about his character um but yeah like everyone else at the hideout uh i think people you are supposed to care about that uh like sold you stuff or just like some of like the more like mainstays at the hideout didn't care about too much uh the lone exception is goots i love goots i thought he was great like goots is the goat so we have to i gotta shout out my boy goots and, and i only remember that because rick shouted him out on a previous episode we were on so <laughs> yeah goots is goots is the best man um, you gotta shout out goots dude goots is so good he's big samwise ganji son of a gun he's a sneaky him. mvp so <laughs> dave's like not seeing it <laughs> no i i felt nothing for goots goots is hodor and that's it. Except he can talk in full sentences. He's smarter than Hodor. Hodor. Yeah, so yeah. give him a little more credit. <laughs> but that's <laughs> but, that's what he is. He's he's Hodor. He's the big guy who is around doing big guy stuff. He right. I mean, there's a couple of quests where he helps out and talks to people and stuff. But like, it's it's just a continuation. I'm I'm glad you talked about the other people back in the hideout because I felt nothing for anybody at the hideout. People who sell you stuff. The blacksmith. Um, late in the game, I said, I didn't do side quests. And part of it is because a lot of the side quests are like, do you want to learn the backstory of the cardboard cutout? Who's been giving you quests for the last 10 hours? And I was like, no, I don't care about this person. And this game has worst in class side quests. So that played into it too. But I, the part of the reason I didn't do those side quests, cause I didn't give a shit about any of the people that are connected to them. Um, I did Blackthorn side quests because I thought they'd give me cool weapons, and sometimes they did, but I didn't like Blackthorn as a character. I can appreciate Blackthorn as a character uh, just from the perspective of somebody that is both deeply proud and deeply self-conscious or maybe self-critical of their own work, their Mm -hmm. trade. Um, Speaking not just as a podcaster, but as a musician, it resonated with me. Um, I'm bringing my own stuff to that. You know, your mileage may vary. Uh, the side quests, though, I wonder how much of that was Final Fantasy XIV's influence. Yeah. Um, I played about 12 hours of XIV. Uh, about 11 of those were fetch quests. Uh, I'm I'm not even exaggerating. And, you know, it, it was the same story in that game. You talk to somebody, they ask you to get something, you go and get it, you hold down the command button until the little circle fills up to pick it up, and then when you drop it off, you have to select it off of a menu that pops up. Um, it's it's copy paste into final fantasy 16 and you know, maybe that works in an MMO. I I'm not one to say I'm, I'm too biased against them, but it doesn't work in 16. I don't think. And man, like I, Zeno, the Xeno saga series taught me that world building is what I come to JRPGs for. I love it. And some of the side quests, the thing that frustrated me so much, and Eric, I know I've said this to you already is that 
it's really hit or miss. The ones that are indicated with a plus are always going to give you some kind of an upgrade, an upgrade to your potions, an upgrade to your carrying capacity, whatever. Those are important to do if for no other reason than to help you through the game. Um, it's not a hard game, but it'll help you, you know, get through without much, much trouble. The ones that are just represented by a green indicator, it's it's a total coin toss as to whether it's like Dave said, a, a fetch quest that teaches you about an NPC you'll never talk to again, or something that's trying to further the world building and the thematic struggles that are within this game's world uh, that do ultimately get abandoned. But that's neither here nor there. They're still very cool. Uh, and I never knew which ones were worth doing or which ones were going to be a waste of 20 minutes. And that mm-hmm. was so frustrating. Yep. Games that have really good side quest story content in side quests, like ta- mechanical stuff in side quests is, is, is pretty limited, I think, across video games. Like there's only so many ways that you can build side quests, I think. So what the good games do is they introduce complications or unforeseen things into the stories of the side quests or... Uh, maybe you thought like The Witcher 3 is is fantastic for this. You think you're going to go there to kill a monster, but it's not what it seems. There's a, some complication, whether it's a mechanical complication, a different thing to fight than you expected, or that what you were told is not at all what's actually happening and what's actually happening is super interesting. This game does none of that. And so that the side quests that I did early in the game were like, uh, go here, collect five piles of dirt for my garden. And then you go there, you collect five piles of dirt, and then you go back and give them the dirt. There is nothing interesting that happens along the way. And it just happened too many times. You know, as the the great poet once said, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, won't get fooled again. Speaking as the uh, OCD member of the group where I have to do everything, I I can leave no green icon unchecked because it's just going to bother me. I'll be 10 minutes down the road in, in the main story and be like, I should have did that green check mark because it's just it's all I can think about. Um, yeah, in terms of like you're talking about games that have great side quests, like Davey mentioned, Witcher 3, fantastic. Um, a more recent one, uh, Horizon Forbidden West. The side quests in that game are fantastic because they're always give like developing that world and giving you like really, really touching character moments. So I think that's the the definitely the good end of the spectrum of the way to do side quests. Yeah, a lot of these are showing their MMO influence because Yoshi P obviously came over from 14. And I got to think that people that play MMOs, I'm not putting you on a box. So if you play MMOs, like I'm not judging you. But there's something just very like checking things off a list nature that like alludes itself to playing an MMO. Not saying that MMOs can't have great side quests, but I mean, and and I will not play an MMO because I know it'll just destroy my life. But back when I played RuneScape a lot, it's the same thing. Go there, kill that monster find these two items, put them together, bring it back to me, whatever. Like, that's just that's just how it is. Not defending it, because there are better ways you can design your side quests. There are some in there that I think are very touching and add character and world building building elements to it. They are definitely outnumbered by the the meaningless fetch quest ones. Uh, again, to just to hammer on, like what Rick was saying about the, the blacksmith, uh, his side quest is basically, he's feeling a little sad because he saw a piece of armor from a a rival blacksmith that he thought was incredible and amazing. And he felt he was just feeling really bad about himself. And he talked to him. He's like, my craft can never live up to this. And how can I ever make something this, this incredible? And I, and as a person who like makes things and puts them on the internet, I was like, I feel that because I think about that every time I put out an episode, I'm like, this is not great. How can I ever make something as good as like what you guys do or what some of the other podcasters do? So that was just, it, it kind of touched me and formed a, a connection there. I know not everyone's going to do that because not everyone makes stuff or has a podcast, but 
there are things in there and there are a couple of quests in there that have like shocking implications to the world. And I think Rick knows which one I'm talking about specifically. I won't spoil it if we don't want to, but uh, that has to do a little bit with how bears are looked upon and stuff. So there are some of those there and they like start to like kind of build out the world. But then again, like we hit the 50% mark and it's just kind of like none of this stuff really matters because we've got the Final Fantasy villain to to fight now. So I don't, I'm not I'm not defending them, but there are some in there that I think add add some value to the game for sure. Yeah. Two things real quick. Uh, you mentioned how you can't leave um, the little quest uh, icons uncleared. And I want you to know how much it hurts me to leave them uncleared too. This, <laughs> the side quests in this game just sucked so badly uh, on average that I, 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 I soldiered through it. That's fair. I think too, they, they also kind of serve, uh, and uh, this again, not defending it, but for me, at least they kind of serve a secondary purpose because they, they showed up a lot after you had these gigantic action sequences, right? And that's when the game really kind of craters to a stop. And I think we'll touch on that when we talk spoilers a little more about how insane those action sequences are, but mm-hmm. those really got me pumped. Like I was sweating, my heart was beating and stuff. So I did enjoy from time to time a mindless, a mindless, meaningless side quest just to kind of like cleanse my palate and like reset me for like the next story arc. And I realize not everyone thinks in the sicko way that I do, but uh, I, there there were moments where I was just like, let me just knock out like three quick fetch quests just to like process w- the crazy shit that had just happened. I will say, Eric, I do agree with you. I, you know, I'm I'm OK with pacing, slowing down between these dramatic intense uh just feasts for the eyes i'm cool with that um but i'm thinking back to final fantasy 9 eric and uh like think of the town of dali like when the first time that we go there um the pacing is a little bit slower after the evil forest right and i I was asking myself why does that work so well but the lower uh the slower paced stuff in 16 doesn't and i think a lot of it comes down to the character, to the ensemble and the characters. Um, it comes down to the world building. Like we are learning more about the world while being in Dali and 16 is, it's kind of absent in, in those areas. Mm-hmm. And while I, I definitely appreciated not having just nonstop icon battles constantly. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Although I would play um, that game probably. <laughs> oh yeah. I would play that. That game's called Bayonetta and it's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that also Strangers of uh, of Final Fantasy, Strangers of Paradise? You're or? basically killing things nonstop in that game. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And that's just, yeah, and Jack's just being Jack also. But that game has a huge advantage over 16 and then it has Jack in it. So That's true, yeah. <laughs> 16 would get la- raised like two letter grades if Jack made any appearance. Just would have shown up in the middle of one of those giant fights and been like, yeah. fuck. I don't this. give a fuck who you are. <laughs> Oh, what was Sorry, Rick. Yeah. Oh, no, it's okay. The, the, the side all, quests. All, all this to say, like, I, I I, like pacing to, you know, ebb and flow. I just, I think they were a little too lax on the, the ebbing sections. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yep. I also wanted to get your guys' thoughts on um, the Game of Thrones comparisons. I mean, I put it in my elevator pitch because it is one of the 
big things that was pitched. I mean, like, I think it's fairly common knowledge that, like, the people making the game, uh, I think, were told to watch Game of Thrones to get, you know, inspiration for how that show works. Um, And it's interesting because, like, I can think of, like, some other TV shows that have obviously taken inspiration from Game of Thrones since it released, but I haven't really seen it in video games like it is uh, kind of on Front Street in this game. It's a dark, gritty world uh, where horrible things happen to good people all the time. Uh, Characters die that are, you know, part of your main group. Um, The average person you talk to is a giant asshole. It just kind of like everyone's life sucks. So they're not happy people that you talk to a lot of times. I personally watched Game of Thrones. Eric, I know you watched it. I read all the books that are, you know, come on, George. I, I've read everything you've written in the series. Come on, put out another book, buddy. He's going to die before he finishes it. I'm sorry. Oh, uh, yeah. I've, I've resigned myself <laughs> to that. But yeah, um, I am a fan of Game of Thrones. Uh, so when I heard the comparisons, that was kind of a draw for me, like that they're trying this darker thing inspired by Game of Thrones. Uh, Rick, do you have experience with that series? Technically. Um, I've seen the first episode. <laughs> okay. And I did buy the first book, but I bought the first book. It was one of those like paperback books that, you know, they're a little too small and they tried to pack so many words on the page. It's uh-huh. just too small for me to read. Um, <laughs> so it's just been perpetually in my, yeah, I'll get to it pile. So, um, I don't, I know nothing about game of Thrones. Okay. I, I know the one scene with Hodor And that is literally, I've been otherwise unspoiled. (laughs) Okay, fair enough. I just wanted to like kind of talk about this as this is part of um, the pitch for this game. And uh, whether we think that they like, you know, right, like you said, uh, Rick, this game writes a bunch of checks and basic not copying, but taking tons of inspiration from Game of Thrones and uh, trying to reproduce those things that made Game of Thrones good is a big check to write. So do we think that, they hit on it. That's the one I never, I've been asked it in that iteration before. Um, in terms of being inspiration, I mean, I, I know, I think Game of Thrones has looked at through the lens of the last two seasons because that's the most recent thing, right? And I think th- you should not get points for that for sure. Um, but up until then, like people forget that that was the best thing on television, like through season six. Yeah. And agreed. that was like appointment watching i was watching that every single week with my dad and like all my friends were watching it we were all texting about it so um game of thrones i feel like did move the the needle in terms of like the type of media and the type of stories that people were telling and able to tell i mean just look at the shows that got made in response to that right they made the rings of power they made the witcher on netflix like direct responses to how huge game of thrones was so I think if you're using that as inspiration and source material, like I think that's that's absolutely fine. I I do like the the medieval aesthetic of the world that was kind that kind of took inspiration from that. Like I I, I didn't have a problem with that at all. Uh, the only problem I have is is with when Clive gets the vampire suit, and I absolutely fucking hate that that vampire suit that he gets <laughs> later in the game. I like this I like this chainmail look better, but uh, that's besides the point. Um, if it would have stuck the landing uh, towards the end of the game, like and and kept with like the political themes it was setting up, then I would have been like, yeah, I think it's it's inspiration with Game of Thrones was very well founded. But I feel I hate to keep sounding like a broken record, but again, like once you get halfway through the game, it's like that stuff doesn't really matter anymore yeah. because we've got a bigger existential threat to face and that does happen in game of thrones like when the night king comes and stuff like everybody's kind of got to kind of put aside their differences but 
even when that happens, like there's still like political maneuvering in there. So as bad as those last two seasons were, there were still like people plotting to like backstab each other and had their own like interests and goals. And that just doesn't happen. Once you hit 50% of the game, everybody's just kind of like, oh, this is a bigger common goal we have to work towards. Otherwise, we're all going to die. And and everyone's just on board with it. So I, I think it's it's fine to take inspiration from it. But whether or not it sticks that landing, uh, I'm not quite sure. It, it's like they took world building inspiration from Game of Thrones. And then, like you said, once the real plot in, you know, in air quotes kicks off, it's it's not really a thing anymore. Um, you know, I've talked about on this show and other shows how lots of game developers seem to be taking the wrong lessons from the Souls series as those games and that genre gets really, really popular. I think that a lot of people are taking the wrong lessons from Game of Thrones as well. The idea that you have a dark, gritty world where people are assholes and named main characters die is not special anymore. Uh, Maybe it never was special. The thing that made Game of Thrones special to me is that the writing was fucking excellent in Game of Thrones. And in every quiet conversation that people were having in Game of Thrones, everyone was like holding their breath listening when Cersei and, uh, you know, one of the Tyrells were talking to like Mother Tyrell were talking to each other. You're like, I'm hanging on every word they say. And I can't say the same thing about a single conversation in Final Fantasy 16. So it feels like they missed the secret sauce. Like they took the surface level stuff that's easy to replicate. But the thing that made Game of Thrones actually special is just, is not really here. And then, like you said, the surface level stuff goes away too. So then we're left with like inspiration for the beginning of the story, but not really inspiration for the heart of what Final Fantasy 16 is, I think. I mean, yeah, I would agree with that. Like you said, It sets it up like it's going to be that because, again, you go through the demo and like once you finally take over playing older Clive and stuff a couple hours into the game, like that stuff's kind of that stuff's all kind of set up there. And the active time system kind of backs all that up. But it just, yeah, it doesn't quite deliver, but it delivers on like all the other stuff. Like people are called Lord Commanders and like your grace. I'm like, oh, these titles are all just lifted directly from from right from Game of Thrones. So, yeah. So, yeah, I. I would agree with you in saying that the lessons just because you have a a story where people die and there's nudity and people are having sex, it's that's not what yeah, makes Game too. of Thrones. Yeah. Game of Thrones, which yeah, it, it, that stuff is just shocking because the characters are so well developed, and it's like at any moment, any one of these characters, one misstep could like be the end of them. That was like the draw. So yeah, you can't say it quite delivers on that level. You make a good point. There's um there there's no incestuous relationship in Final Fantasy 16, so I, I question whether they actually watched Game <laughs> of Thrones or not. Would have been at least two points higher. I mean, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Rick, does I know you don't have the comparison with Game of Thrones, but do you agree or have any thoughts about you know the things that we have brought up as they relate to 16 here? Well, one thing that you said, Dave, was uh when characters on Game of Thrones are are speaking, that the audience is sort of holding their breath because they they don't want to miss anything. And while while I do feel that the writing narratively in sixteen falls short of of expectations, to me personally, I, I think the dialogue writing in general is really quite good. I will, with the exception of two lines that I can think of that are <laughs> just real just real stinkers. Um, like I I thought. The writing, the dialogue writing was was quite nice. It was pretty good. Yeah. But 
and for me personally, never got to the point where like, I can't wait to hear what this person says next, mm. you know? Oh, sure. I mean, at the end of the day, like it's really tough comparing literature to video games when it comes to writing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not saying that video games don't have amazing writing. I mean, I'm playing Pentiment for goodness sake. And that that's one of my favorite games of all time. Yep. But you know, I mean, George R.R. R. Martin is good at what he does because what he does is writing. Yeah. That, that is what he does. Um, and, you know, I I don't have a reference again because I, I haven't read the books. But as far as dialogue goes, I you know, I, I was into it. I liked it. Kind of along those lines. And like we have brought up several times at this point that the, you know, the 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 base level world building and initial conflicts kind of get left in the dust for like a higher scope level thing as is you know per the series it, this is how they they always go so just real quick without any spoilers of course but like since we did move up to this higher scope did you find that entertaining did you like that so that's i mean that to me is final fantasy 16's biggest misstep it it sets up all of this cool stuff and does almost nothing with it. One one of the things that I think about is Metia. It sets up Metia through a series, several shots that frame it as being an incredibly important symbol in the game. And they ultimately do not do anything with it. And that says one of two things. It's either sequel bait or DLC bait, or it's, it's just a, a missed writing opportunity. And I don't like either of those. For different reasons, but I don't like either of those. Um, you know, the things with the bearers, this idea of class, this idea of autonomy, of independence, of of human rights, all of this gets abandoned. Even the idea of Clive being stronger with his friends, ultimately, and perhaps a mild spoiler, ultimately, he does it alone. At the very end, all of these thematic ideas, and that's not even touching on the whole uh, mythos, logos, and and Yeshua things, uh, Joshua, Yeshua, uh, Christ, all of that. It's not it's not touching on any of that. All of these thematic ideas are just abandoned. And I, uh, to be fair, maybe I'm missing something. I I would be open to have somebody more knowledgeable in those areas tell me, hey, no, actually, you missed something. But to me, currently. I just, it feels like, I don't want to say shoddy writing, but it feels like disjointed writing. And that's the biggest misstep of this game to me. Yeah. Again, like that stuff, again, like you said, if, if I'm missing something that's actually really fucking cool and novel, then I'm open to hearing about it. But for me, as I sit here, I really liked the stuff they introduced early in the game because it's new, it's cool, it's creative. And when it gets abandoned for stuff that is seemingly in like half of these games that I play in this series, uh, it just, I've been there before and it, there's nothing special about it, I don't think. Uh, and you make a lot of good points about, you know, how it goes with Clive uh, throughout the story. And of course, we'll dive into this in the spoiler section, but like the reason that we're, at least me and you, and we'll get to you, Eric, here in a second, but like the reason that we're bemoaning them leaving this like initial setup is because the initial setup is cool and new and the stuff, the places they go are not new and your mileage may vary on whether you think it's cool or not, but it's certainly not anywhere that I haven't been before. The Eric brought up (laughs) the Eric. I don't know why I just said that. (laughs) My official Um, title. Thank you for using it. (laughs) The, the Eric from Unlockable. Yes. Um, (laughs) The Ohio state. Um, I, you know, (laughs) 
Eric, you brought up a side quest earlier uh, in, involving a bearer, and it was building into this world, this theme of do bearers have inherent worth? Are bearers people? Should they be treated like people and not like property or lower than animals? The dirt, the dirt on the dirt on my boots, to quote Kefka. And where did that go? I was so hooked on that side quest. Where did it go? Nowhere. And I I was really invested in that. I guess I can say a couple of things. Um, no, I, I agree with a lot of the points you guys are making for sure. Uh, this is the part where like my blind nostalgia and I think just my long term exposure to Namor radiation has probably warped my brain a little bit. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I, I understand how the second half of the game doesn't doesn't pay off a lot of the stuff it sets up early, which is which is really cool stuff. And now that they have announced DLC, I hope they I hope they take that chance to go back and maybe expand on some of that stuff, because that's the stuff I want to want to see more of for sure. There's just something about that stupid Final Fantasy stuff that just makes my brain so happy. I don't know what it is like. But when it goes to that, like bizarre, like this doesn't make any sense. Like none of this stuff is paying off. But like I that's what I love the series for, because it go, a lot of times it goes like these goofy places where you're just like, this doesn't make any sense. And like, what do you mean Necron shows up at the end of FF9? That wasn't teased at all. But I love it for some fucking reason, just because it's it's so like grandiose and ridiculous in in the way they try to present it. And yeah, I may have seen it like a million times, but like no other video game studio is doing like that stupid stuff. And I've just I've played it for so long. It's just to me, that's that's what it is. And you could show me that card trick 47 times and I'm going to love it every single time just because Nomura has probably melted my brain at this point. So even though he wasn't technically involved in this game, so his influence runs deep. Let's let's admit that. Well, I mean, the Kingdom Hearts team did help out. So he wasn't directly involved, but his presence is eternal. You cannot escape. Yeah. So yeah, that's just my nostalgic. Yeah, I don't really have any points as to why I like it. I just I like stupid things. So well, fair enough. I mean, I asked if you like it, so if you like it, that's cool. As our good friend says, it's okay to like a video game, right? That's right. Shout out, Keith. <laughs> I think Final Fantasy 16. Uh, looks really, really incredible. Uh, we we kind of touched on this in the, the very top of the show. Uh, the spectacle that's on display here, this is AAA video games. Like if you are uh, buying AAA games with this kind of budget, with this kind of graphical style, I think that part of what you want is this kind of spectacle, especially from a fantasy game. And this game really delivers, I think, on like the highest of high spectacle in the first couple hours, you see, like I said, you see that fight, that battle with Titan versus Shiva, and then you have a, a big icon fight after that, or it was before that. It was before that. Um, the visuals, the spectacle, the the scale of some of the things that are on display here, really, really impressive um, across the board. And that's, you know, to say that a new Final Fantasy game, like from a fidelity perspective, looks good, like that kind of goes without saying, but the spectacle was really what blew me away as far as visuals go in this game. Yeah, I would agree. I'm not, I don't normally peg myself as like the, the visual guy, right? Like to me, I don't focus on a, you know, something is 60 frames a second, 4k, like whatever, like if it looks good, like I'll, I'll play it. 
Uh, I, I'm blind enough as it is to a, a point where I, I really can't tell a difference. Um, yeah, I mean, in typical Square fashion, like their stuff always looks looks good. Uh, I thought the the direction and everything made a believable world. I, I loved watching the screen. Like you said, this the, it's clear where all of their money went in this yeah. game, right? I mean, this is a spectacle. Like we're holding back, but we mentioned a couple of times now, like when we talk about the gigantic spectacle, like it's just when you think it achieves that peak spectacle, it goes like one step further. And I think that's one thing this game does really well. But yeah, yeah. in terms of everything, I know like when it launched, there are like some performance issues. And uh, I played on the the whatever the lesser mode is. I think it's the quality mode uh, and turn that motion blur off as soon as they put that option in there. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I don't pay too much attention to that kind of stuff. I think the game looks great. Again, I grew up in the 16-bit era, so I'm just amazed that this shit is on my screen right now. So I'm sure people that are more technical and, and notice notice visual things would maybe have a more interesting take. But, I mean, the game is visually stunning, like you said. Yeah. And that's not to say that, like, you know, the fact that it is super high fidelity, 4K, high resolution textures, all of that means that it's a good looking game. But I do think, like, there is just insane direction Uh, behind some of like we said we keep saying the word spectacle but like some of this is the coolest shit i've ever seen in a video game from like a visual perspective there were there were fights in the game where i was sitting there with like my mouth hanging open like a little kid you'd probably the first time i saw you know ocarina of time when i was however old the first time i played that like the thing that was the coolest shit i'd seen then now i've now seen like some of the coolest shit again in this game so it's it's just just really impressive. And again, probably where like the bulk of their money went paying all these people to make these CGI stuff. Yeah, it's not really fair to compare it to the older Final Fantasies. Although I, I will say I, I do prefer when the, the art direction is more theatrical. You know, your FF4, 6, 9, uh, your Sea of Stars, your Pentiment. Like I really like things like that mm-hmm. um, that aren't hyper-realistic However, I mean, there's just no arguing it. This this game looks phenomenal. And that is, I, I mean, to me, far and away, it's strongest suit. It's it's incredible. Yeah. I, I think when I think back to the things I liked the most about Final Fantasy 16, it will be those moments where I could not believe what was on my TV. Like what I was looking at, the art direction around some of these fights that you do. That is probably, like you said, Rick, the strongest part about the game to me. It's certainly the most memorable thing. I, As years pass, I will forget about the story of this game, but I will remember some of those fights. In terms of visual, like I said, Square's always been very good at that. They used to be on the cutting edge. People kind of caught up to them. But in terms of like their last three, like I said, they're out of their major IPs they put out, KH3, 7 Remake. 16 like all those games have looked fantastic cage 3 is basically a pixar movie 7 remake there's so much detail in that world in the in the world in the city of midgar when you're in there and Mm -hmm. i I would say there's not as much of that in in 16 just because a lot of that is more like open fields it's not like a gigantic clustered city that's also a power generator so i think the detail in 7 remake and and kingdom hearts is a little little bit more but it's still in terms of like they, they 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 know what they're doing. They got visuals down. If they, if they struggled earlier in the decade or with, or with earlier you know games or titles, I think they've got that pretty much ironed out for sure. I will say, like from an from an art direction perspective, I thought a lot of the dungeons were very boring uh, to look at to play, especially to play. But mm-hmm. to look at, there were anonymous corridors and anonymous like 
hexagonal or octagonal arenas to fight yeah. in and stuff like that. So it, it's not A pluses across the board as far as art direction goes, in my opinion. I, I am really surprised that more people aren't talking about the linearity of a lot of this game. Mm-hmm. Um, how heavily lampooned 13 was at its release for its linearity and still to this day. I mean, I'm I'm not defending that game necessarily, but there is a lot of linearity in this game. And even when you do get to explore the open world, a lot of it is bare. Like it's not populated. It doesn't feel like a world that I am a uh, a new observer in. It just feels like it's there for me to to explore if I want to. But nothing's actually going on. You know, I, I think that's a really good point. And I, I forgot to write this in the notes, but I think the fact the way that you interact with the world in this uh, basically via choosing nodes on a map screen and you never see anything in between uh, the places where you're going. You know, at least in Final Fantasy 13, you're walking through like the corridors and stuff you might see out in the um, the distance in some of the levels that you're in. Final Fantasy 10 is the same way, like I- extremely linear game. I don't think people are criticizing 16 because we've we've swung the other way on giant open worlds. A lot of people have now like Back when 13 released, everyone wanted big open world games. Everyone in air quotes, I know. But I think that's part of the reason that game got criticized. Now a lot of people are exhausted by big open worlds. And it's kind of ironic that this is a very linear game that's still as long as a lot of those big open world games are. But the fact that the world doesn't feel like a real place that you're inhabiting and that the other people are inhabiting, I think part of that is because when I want to go somewhere... I don't even get the option to walk there myself for the most part. You know, a lot of open world games get criticized because you just fast travel from place to place. But in this game, you don't have the option to not do that. That's how you have to go from place to place is just pick this from a map screen. Pick, I want to go to the other side or I want to go to the next level. It's like right next to here. You could walk there, but it's really fucking complicated. I don't see why anyone would do that. If you want to go longer than that, you can't walk from place to place. You have to choose it from a map screen. And so the world loses some of that, like, you know, kind of lived in quality or like feeling familiar with the places that you're going through because, you know, you might return to the places you've been before, but there's really nothing special about it. You're just picking it from that map screen. I uh, j- just to clarify something that I said, I, I, I'm not against linearity in games. I think it can help storytelling especially really really to a great degree yeah um it's more so with this game like i I just felt like everywhere i was going and i know i am not the first one to say this i just can't remember who i heard it from but it, it seems like there's always this really big visual cue telling you exactly where you need to go it's like it's like it's trying to trick you into thinking you can go more places than you can um <laughs> but it's actually a tight line, which, mm. you know, I, some people might say that's a great thing. Um, that's, it comes down to taste, uh, and there's no accounting for that, but I don't know it, it, I wish there was, I wish there was a better balance, I guess. I think linearity has gotten a bad rap recently because linear games are not bad games. Some of my favorite games of all time are very linear games. So not every game has a reason to be a gigantic open world. Like if you just have a giant open world, that's great. But if it's not filled with anything to do, like, like what, like what, what purpose does it serve? It doesn't, yeah. it doesn't serve any person to just kind of, kind of waste your time. I think too, you have to think also, and maybe this is just my brain. Cause when I played this game, uh, literally a month before this, we got tears of the kingdom, which is the 
antithesis of what this game is. It's a, hey, I see that mountain in the distance over there. I can literally go there. There's nothing stopping me. I just go over there and there's usually something over there for, for me to check out, right? So I went from playing the most freeing experience possible in a video game today to this, which is a much more constrictive, limited, like the, this is a AAA experience. Like Dave is like hammered home. Like this is what Square Enix is now. They have to make AAA games to make this money. And a lot of these AAA games, like even though God of War does it better, God of War also is like these past two like box arenas where you fight things and you go to the next thing. Even though that world, they did a better job of interconnecting that world, I, I would definitely say. But that's the AAA experience these days. I, I, I'm just going to say straight out, I'm glad this is linear and I don't trust Square Enix to make an open world. I think it would be terrible. Uh, just based on how they design quests and stuff like that in this game. I am very happy that I could skip all that shit and just kind of keep the train <laughs> moving uh, when it got to a certain point in the story. You guys mentioned the voice acting before. Um, I want to uh, kind of give my two cents on it. I, I thought the voice acting is really well done. Um, I could not suspend my disbelief that that's what Clive and Sid sound like. I It sounds weird, but especially Sid. I just, maybe it's the the model and the voice. There's something about it where I was like, that's not how he talks. That's it's, it's me with donkey Rick. That's not how he talks. I can't believe that that's his real voice. <laughs> that is um, how he talks. <laughs> I, people say that. I don't believe it. It's a, it's a lie. I'm being Truman showed right now, but the voice acting is well done. Everyone who was hired did a great job. I think Ben Starr did a great job as Clive. Even if I was like, yeah, is that the voice for Clive? I'm glad he doesn't sound like Titus or, or cloud or something like that. But yeah, everyone did good. It will just leave it at that. There were a couple of performances late in the game where I thought they were laying it on really, really thick, but that's what they were asked to do. So they did a good job with that. One thing I appreciate too, if I just, I have to shout out Ben star because we have a lot of these final fantasy voice actors that it's just, it's kind of a role, right? But Ben star has really like embraced the, the community. And it seems to me like he's like actual, like genuine gamer dude right like he he posted the other day when it was announced that charles martinet was retiring that he was doing mario's voice in clive's voice and it was just like this is hysterical so yeah so he seems like yeah he seems like he was really like genuinely invested in like the project whereas like even Haley joel osmond as sora like doesn't ever mention that he plays sora like literally (laughs) literally ever so uh there are people that just kind of like phone it in but i i appreciate his effort and like he took it seriously when he was going to be in a Final Fantasy game. And I can, de- that definitely shows through whether you're not that believe, you believe that's his voice or not. And then, yeah, Sid, Ralph Innocent just makes me feel like I need to smoke more. Yeah. Even though I, I love his voice, but every time Sid was on screen, I'm like, I should be smoking right now. You I should just be, feel you like, should be yeah. smoking right now. Like, what are you <laughs> you're doing? Right, all the time, <laughs> just on the show. <laughs> and now for a break for our sponsors. Yeah. Marlboro. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, I'm a Newport's guy myself, but I'm not just. <laughs> <laughs> oh, damn. Look at you, fancy man. Okay. <laughs> Cigarettes are too expensive. Like <laughs> Music in Final Fantasy 16. I uh, want to get your guys' thoughts on the music. Um, I This is by uh, main credit to uh, Masayoshi Soken, who did the music for Final Fantasy 14, which is like universally revered. I have never heard a bad thing about that uh, OST. Um, I liked this soundtrack a lot, especially I think it sets a great tone in the first couple hours, like we said in that demo. A lot of really intense scenes, battle scenes. Um, I, I remember the, the, again, the fight with Titan and Shiva that it's intense orchestrated battle music, but it's weaving in like the, the final fantasy prelude uh, melody that we all know and love a lot of good stuff. I think in here, 
the full orchestration, I think, is really cool. Heavy emphasis on um, male vocal choirs throughout it, which I think adds a lot of power to a lot of the songs where they're uh, apart. And you're going to hear them a lot because they're a part of a lot of like the the combat and boss battle tracks and stuff. But um, I, I thought this was great. I really enjoyed it. It's probably not going to be one where I'm like humming the songs to myself. Like I've had Vivi's theme stuck in my head since I played FF9 like a year ago now. But it, it's a different type of, you know, score. I will say I kind of prefer the more relaxed tracks to the bombastic ones. Like, yeah. you know, thinking of the Titan fight, which is a really, really cool track to be, to be fair. I, I found myself more often just thinking about the, like the hideaway theme. Yeah. Um, or maybe that's not the hideaway theme. Da, 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 Like whatever that one is played on like a stringed instrument. And there's one where you're walking through like the Greenwood too. That was very like peaceful and serene too. That is, is really great. Yeah. I, I prefer those tracks, man. Um, in general, though, like I, I thought this music did a good job of staying out of the way when it wasn't needed. And I appreciated that. A yeah. Lot. To, to be clear, like those quiet things, I think, are really, really good. And there's a point in the game where like the tone changes of the entire game, basically, uh, both visually and with music. And I thought that was really, really well done. I enjoyed that a lot. I mean, it, it plays into more quiet stuff, like you said. So good point. Yeah, I think in terms of music, and I'm going to make this point so I can uh, give Rick the same layup that I did on our earlier episode because he had a really <laughs> great point about it. So I won't I won't take it, Rick. But uh, in, in terms of like the score, uh, yeah, I think the score is really great. Uh, it's not one of my preferred Square Enix composers, but he did a great job. I, I think the tone, as and this is just kind of a shift in video games in general, we're seeing a lot more of these fully orchestrated scores in games, especially these AAA games, right? And I think that's because these games are shifting more towards the the cinematic end and i just couldn't help myself thinking about movies right like movies have these very heavily orchestrated scores that kind of like live in the background a little bit and kind of serve to like help move the the movie forward and and i felt kind of the same way about 16 soundtrack where it's like if you're going back to like the older days like a lot of the music is like the same and that's not a problem because it was it was fitting in the theme of the game and i thought that it themed the game very well whereas like if you go back to like Final Fantasy IX, for example, like the music in that game is so diverse and how many different styles of music Uematsu uses and just mm-hmm. how many different like tracks there are in that game that it's it's almost a different type of uh, of music. And, you know, I, I mentioned Shimomura a lot just because I think her work on the Kingdom Hearts series is fantastic in the way that she interweaves themes to like also tell the story and kind of like tell secrets of the story that when you go back and listen, when you know the story, you're like, oh, okay, like that makes sense why she's using that theme here. And she pulls all the themes forward throughout the entire series and kind of interweaves them as she goes. Whereas like, this is just like, it's a cinematic orchestra to like theme the game. And I'm sure Rick can correct me on all of the correct terminology and stuff. But so I just feel like it's a different type of Final Fantasy score than we've had previously and compared to like older stuff and compared to like some of the stuff that Shimomura was doing. No, I don't, I don't need to correct you at all, man. I think that was, that was well said. Um, no, you know, I, I think most Final Fantasy tracks, uh, OSTs, have their own character to them. And I think this one is the character of 16. I, I have no idea what layup you were talking about, Eric, the point that I made before. Like, I, I genuinely don't remember. Okay, well, um, I'll just throw it into the stands and that's fine. Okay. <laughs> 
that's hey okay <laughs> but um yeah you know i mean like thinking about nine thinking about 10 10 2 especially um and now 16 i i think they're all very emblematic of what the game is and yeah you know i don't uh i don't have strong feelings about this soundtrack i i think it's good yeah kind of along you you mentioned the um like the orchestral stuff eric and like you know the comparison with movies and I've brought it up on some of the AAA games that have what I would call like a Marvel movie score, basically. And I think this game has more personality. Like this soundtrack has more personality and memorable qualities to it than a Marvel movie score. You know, the Marvel movies, or I said this about God of War Ragnarok, that game has one recognizable melody that they kind of weave through a lot of the tracks and stuff. But other than that, I, I I couldn't tell you much more about that except you know again, deep male choir. But I think this game has a lot more personality than the quote Marvel movie score. There are a couple of uh, things that were a little bit like kind of bummers about this soundtrack, though. I don't want to point them out. Um, this game has like three hundred tracks in the soundtrack. There's one combat theme that you'll hear throughout the entire game, and that's kind of a bummer. I would have liked to mix it up. I, I think there might be like a dungeon combat song too, but you're not in very many dungeons, so you don't hear it a whole lot. Uh, and there's a really cool vocal version of the victory fanfare. You know, the da 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 Powerful choir version of that. And you hear it like six times in a 45-hour game. You'll beat big, important story bosses and not hear it. You'll just get like this very anticlimactic tone after the battle and it's it's a real buzzkill i fucking hated it give me that fanfare what are you doing (laughs) i did think one thing that was interesting too is like you mentioned uh some of those themes get interwoven in a way we haven't really heard before like when you start the game up and that that menu theme is like the darker version of the the final fantasy prelude yep that makes you it kind of sets the the tone for what what, what's going to be coming forward and also kind of the way too they interweave like the the main Final Fantasy theme in there during like triumphant moments, whereas like most of the times this Final Fantasy soundtracks like shy away from that. They don't really like touch the prelude. They don't really touch like the main theme. Like all the scores have like their own identity. So I kind of like the just homage to the series overall, in, including the prelude, including the main theme. Yeah, I think they did a good job with that for sure. Yeah. My, my only uh, pet peeve with this ost is they took away the chocobo theme yeah you just get a little reduced mm. reduced it to like a little sting yep Uh, the sting is good i like the sting but i would have liked to hear the, the full thing for sure gives you a little nostalgia shot and that's all it does We mentioned at the top of the show that this is an action game. It's the first like full action game in the main Final Fantasy series, Stranger of Paradise notwithstanding uh, action game, incredible action game. This is a little bit different though. First thing to kind of point out is this is a flashy action game. Tons of particle effects, um, animations with a bunch of personality. It's 
character action. And, and they did bring on the combat designer from Devil May Cry 5 to uh, help build this combat system out. It's also why I said at the top of the show that this is an action game and not an action RPG, because it is just a pure action game. Um, you press square to attack. You only have one attack button. I thought that was kind of a bummer, like no heavy attack, light attack buttons. Uh, and that may seem like a real nitpick, but uh, I'm getting there, I promise. Uh, what you're doing basically in combat is you're you're attacking, you're using abilities from the icons that Clive can kind of like take in the essence from, be blessed by, uh, if you will. And you, you can use their abilities in combat Small enemies, you just fight until they're dead. Larger enemies have a stagger bar, very similar to 7 Remake uh, or other games with stagger bars. See also video games. What you're doing is kind of whittling down those stagger bars until they enter a staggered state where you can kind of unload for high damage stuff and take them down. The reason I'm kind of making these, made that nitpick at the beginning, is that I think this combat looks really complicated, but at its base level, it's extremely simple and gets extremely repetitive as you play. Uh, This was a fun game to play, fun in the hands, but my brain is bored out of my fucking mind, especially during boss fights because they have so much health and you are just kind of repeating the same order of operations over and over again. Um, I know that this is not how a lot of people feel. This is how I... This is... The exact same criticism I made about Xenoblade Chronicles combat, where every single fight, the things look different. The enemy you're fighting looks different. You might have to dodge different attacks, not in Xenoblade, but in this game. But what you're actually doing is the same in every encounter. You are just waiting for your cooldowns to be ready and hammering that stagger bar. Or if it's just a a regular enemy, hit them until they're dead. What do you guys think? I so so I played Bayonetta recently. Uh, sh- shout out to Moon. He's a regular and hell yeah. Shout out server. To He's in mine. Yeah, yeah. Moon, you're loved, buddy. If you're listening to this, and one of the things about Bayonetta that I think is so cool is that you have a lot of expression in how you can move. Uh, what we mean when we say expressive gameplay is what can you draw upon in your bag of tricks, in your uh, in your quiver, in your your arrow quiver to play in a style that is reflective of you. That's kind of what makes action games so cool to me. Mm -hmm. Uh, But in FF 16, you don't really have that. You kind of have to pretty much play the way that they want you to. Um, That's kind of exactly what you said, Dave. I mean, you've got one combo button. Um, You can't really dodge cancel. You don't have any way to stop ending lag, landing lag or anything like that. It's just, you know, they, they didn't fully commit to being an action game. Um, maybe my hope for this, like if, if we're being optimistic, my hope for this is that retrospectively we can look back at this and say that 16 was like a stutter step to becoming a full on action franchise and 17 will be the next one that like really nails this down. Mm -hmm. I hope that happens. I really do. I, I miss turn-based, but we can get that elsewhere. Plenty of good turn-based games. Yep. That's ultimately what it came down for to me. I found my icon setup that I liked pretty early on. And even as I got the later ones, I just didn't change it because one, they're not as useful. And two, it's not really all that different. I mean, like you said, Dave, you're just kind of waiting for your cooldowns, doing your same old combo uh, and dodging, which to be fair, the dodging and the parrying, I mean, 
Yeah, I mean, they work well. I mean, that's that's fun. It feels great to get a parry, and it feels great to get a precision dodge, but mm-hmm. I just wish it were more expressive, like a Bayonetta or like a Devil May Cry. Yeah, it, it's, you know, you mentioned those icons, and the the thing that kind of killed it for me is that there's there's really no reason to use one icon over another except that one's icon, one's cooldowns are ready and the others are not. Um, so like maybe one icon will have a really strong attack that you have to charge up and it does a ton of damage. Well, you have two other icons that have an attack just like that. So this one's cooldowns are ready. The other ones aren't. I'm going to use the one that's ready. There's no elemental weaknesses. There are no real benefits. Like if different ones have appreciable differences in how they affect the stagger bar, I couldn't really tell besides, you know, the big attack that you have to charge up and hit does more stagger damage because it's a more powerful attack. But there's just no strategy to it other than dodge at the right time, attack at the right time. There are some that have that do more stagger damage. And I'm sorry, Eric, I know you've got stuff to say. Yeah. <laughs> um, like Garuda's claws, for example, yeah. are great stagger damage. Uh, Shiva's uh, it might actually be her special, um, like her ultimate special, uh, that gets great stagger damage. But, um, the elemental, the lack of elemental properties drove me up a wall. I could not believe they took that away. It functionally makes magic just, uh, just a projectile and that's it. Yeah. Different, different magic, different elements are just different colors. They don't have any functional difference. Um, you know, this is, I I promise I will kick to you, Eric, but the... (laughs) Eric's over there tearing his hair out. When we talk about like things that are carried through in the Final Fantasy series, some of the important things that are carried through are enemies, like bombs and Marlboros. And, and they changed that to Marble because I think they were just like, no one can pronounce Marlboro. We're changing the name. <laughs> um, we're getting too many kids hooked on smoke. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Again, sponsor of the show. Big fan of the show. Right. Um, <laughs> Those enemies that get carried along, they come with like this institutional knowledge that like I fought bombs in previous Final Fantasy games. I know how bombs work. Well, they don't work that way in Final Fantasy 16 anymore. You don't hit them with fire to make them explode like you can. And Stranger of Paradise respects this shit. Fucking Stranger of Paradise gets it. Um, there's there's no real difference. They're just there. Your knowledge about how to deal with them doesn't help you in this game. And so you're reduced to, like we said, I use this attack, its cooldown is, is you know, busy, so I switch to another icon, use their attacks, switch to the other one. Maybe by the time I use the third one, the first one's cooldowns are ready, and I'll switch back. And that is how 99% of the fights in this game go. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm, I'm going now. <laughs> yes, we're, we're setting <laughs> okay. you free now. No, yeah. So, um, no, I agree with a lot of the criticisms, and I think... The interesting thing about this game is that the initial playthrough seems like it's very curated. Like, you're always right around the level you need to be. And everything kind of does consistent damage across the board with, like, the way things scale and stuff. So, uh, the initial playthrough of this game is very, like, obviously their goal in making this game was to make a game that is more accessible to everyone and draw on a newer audience. And I think the initial playthrough of that game and the way the combat is designed reflects that design decision because yeah it's very surprising that the combat is as simplistic as it is and kind of limits player expression uh especially when they brought in suzuki and and with how stylish and and all the combos and stuff in devil may cry and uh tai yasue and the kingdom hearts team even came over to help out and for all the criticisms levied against kingdom hearts its combat system in the later titles allows for 
a lot of different expression and even takes elemental weaknesses and you're able to weave magic into your your physical combos. So it's surprising that, yeah, it kind of is in that first playthrough where I will defend the combat and I think it shines a little bit more is it, it benefits from an additional playthrough on New Game Plus. Uh, like I said, I'm playing it through on Final Fantasy mode where the level cap is raised to 100. And again, on that first playthrough, one of the most annoying things is when you unlock all the icons, you can spend ability points to like level up their abilities. And when you master them, the, the customization thing is supposed to be you can move icon abilities to the different icons and mix and match them. Unfortunately, the first playthrough of the game doesn't give you enough points to do that with all the abilities. It's mm-hmm. not until you get further into a second playthrough in New Game Plus where you get all those options and the bosses are a lot harder. And there is that element of strategy there where it's like, this boss was hard. I need something that can stagger it more. And some of those icon abilities lend themselves to staggering more. So I know that's not like a good selling point to where it's like, you just got to crank up the difficulty and play the game again. And the combat is good. A, a, a lot of the elements of Kingdom Hearts aren't fully appreciated until you play on that harder, proud, critical mode uh, where those systems really, really come out. And it's just it's not balanced well to like an initial first playthrough, especially for like veteran video game people who kind of like know what they're doing. But when you crank it up just a little bit like that element of strategy and, and then that toughness and that customization gets there. So I know it's not like a good defense of the game, but like there is something there when it's a little bit more difficult. I don't know if that's like a redeeming quality or not. There there are lots of games, like you said, where the combat system really starts to shine when you turn the difficulty up. Um, we talked about The Witcher 3. I firmly believe that The Witcher 3's combat is serviceable, but it's actually pretty good on higher difficulties because mm-hmm. it makes you engage in the systems surrounding combat. Uh, it's just a shame that Final Fantasy 16 doesn't let you play on a higher difficulty until you beat the game once and like i'm not going to play this game again just to experience the you know supposed better version of combat so i'd like i'm glad that you um are playing on that to get that perspective because i had heard that before but i wanted you know i hoped someone on the podcast would be able to speak to that you can always count on me to do the sicko shit for square enix to, to bring that perspective so we salute you <laughs> so like kind of in conclusion with the combat, the overwhelming feeling that I had when playing this is that my hands are having fun, like dodging, parrying. Again, the spectacle of what you're doing is often really impressive, but the actions that I'm going through are the same actions I've been doing for the entire game. Rick, you made a good point. There are some icon abilities that do make you mix it up that are situational, you know, Someone's getting a big attack. Uh, Garuda has a, a dodge attack that if you time it right, you do huge stagger damage. And it's great. Um, there's another icon later that, that gives you a big block. And if you time that right, you can get a nice counter attack. And like, that's all cool. But you use those the same way against every single enemy. So they fall into that order of operations that basically like when they're ready, I will dodge the next attack to do that counter attack. And that's the the depth of the strategy. And this this really comes to a head, you know, I praise the hell out of the spectacle of the boss fights, but the combat system falls down even farther in the boss fights because they take so long that, you know, maybe I I do that order of operations twice against a mini boss, fight, cool down, stagger bar, punish, repeat against a mini boss. In a real boss, it might take 6 or 7 times and it it's really like man, can we just get this shit over with? Like, they're not going to kill me, you know? So can we just 
hit the I get it button and skip to the story cutscene that comes afterward. I think, too, when you stack it up again, I hate to keep bringing seven remake into this when you stack it up against seven remake where it does have that kind of situational strategy of being able to switch to additional characters and they have abilities Mm -hmm. that do different things. And which I'm sure we'll touch on in a second, a more robust RPG system. Yeah, it's just it looks like a a lighter version of of that. Agree. Seven remake has fantastic combat, I think. Um, And I, I also agree. I think it was you, Rick, that said this, like, hopefully Final Fantasy 17 will take this and build on it and they like the bones are there for a really fun and satisfying combat system it just they left out some of the key parts that would have made me ever use my brain in a fight i also think it's a big bummer that you have so many abilities uh, that you unlock throughout the course of the game and you can only equip six at a time Um, it really discourages me from uh, putting points into anything other than the six that i know are good Uh, because like you said, you don't get enough points to level everything up. And even if you wanted to, you can only pick six. So why, why would I level up 15 different skills when six is all I really need? Yeah, it really does. Like I said, it it really is a lot better when you have that additional playthrough, but yeah, they're, they're very clearly structuring your initial playthrough of the game so that you just are not overwhelmed by it. I almost wish they would have, uh, just done away with the customization aspect. Um, and built more or leaned heavier into just making the upgrades make the the uh iconic moves do more damage or just do different things yeah you know that that would have taken the custom customization away yes but it also would have encouraged you to strategize a bit more and encourage you to like swap icons all the time because like i said i used the same three throughout the last half of the game yeah um because I just found that they worked. I got the last icon and I was like, oh, this is not nearly as cool as I thought. And I could be doing way more damage with the third icon. So uh, <laughs> the third icon is very Jack from Strangers of Paradise. He, <laughs> he punch, he yep. punch hard and he punch fast. And yeah, and he doesn't give a fuck. <laughs> it's true. Jack wouldn't need icons to to beat everything in the world of Final nope. Fantasy 16, No, you put, so. you put Jack in this game, he would have beat everything with his bare hands. <laughs> We're getting a little long in the tooth, so let us go to a little wrap-up before the spoiler section here. Um, The question we always ask at the beginning of this kind of wrap-up and housekeeping part is, who would you recommend Final Fantasy XVI to? I guess I can take the first. uh, I'll be a little bit more positive on it here. Um, Honestly, I think if if you're looking to get into the series, I think they set out to make a game that was accessible uh, and appeal to a wider audience. So this is, if this is, if you're looking to kind of jump in and get a, a taste of some of the Final Fantasy stuff, I think, I think this is a good entry point. I also think if you're a fan of the series, I think this game is worth a playthrough. Uh, it's certainly the the most put together Final Fantasy game that we've had in a decent uh, amount of time. You know, not counting that they reset 14, uh, 15 was just a chopped up media mess. So uh, I think in terms of like a package of a complete triple a experience and like if you're like the the average gamer who maybe doesn't have a podcast or you know you play very specific games or just stick to triple a games i think this is an easy recommend um 
I enjoyed my time with it. I, I'll go out on a limb and I say that I like this more than I like Zelda Tears of the Kingdom. So you can, you can have that quoted on the internet forever. So, um, but I, I think it's good. I think it's worth a, a playthrough. But again, like I've said, this whole thing, I am much more blinded by my Square Enix nostalgia. Uh, so I, I do agree that the criticisms that were levied toward this game are a hundred percent warranted and it can always be better and i hope it will be better uh in, like you guys said in final fantasy 17 because i think it's a good good stepping stone in the right direction but if you're at all morbidly curious about it i would go ahead and pick it up it it did financially well enough that square enix came out and said it met our expectations they greenlit two <laughs> D. they greenlit two dlc for it so i mean it, it obviously did well enough that that they're spending more time with it yeah, I can echo some of that. I mean, if you're somebody like Eric said that likes to play AAA games, I mean, this is an easy recommend, like you said. Um, if you are somebody that, you know, likes to play a little bit of everything, quote unquote, you know, like like somebody like that, this is an easy recommend. I wouldn't recommend it to like diehard action fans and I wouldn't recommend it to diehard JRPG fans um, because they might find this to be a bit disappointing. But you know, and if you're new to Final Fantasy, uh, there are better places to start, I think, but there are worse to start than 16 for sure. So, so really, I mean, the only folks that I might not recommend this to would be hardcore action game fans, uh, you know, or hardcore JRPG fans. What Rick and I both really want to say is that you should start with Final Fantasy IX. That's the be- that's the best one. Well, <laughs> twist my arm into saying it, why don't you? <laughs> Yeah, I, I agree with you guys. I, I think that this is a like a decent starting place, especially if you're the type of person who prefers action combat to some of the other variations on turn-based or like more active but not action combat that the series has gone through before. This is a fine place to start. Um, I'm super critical of this game because they were just it's close. Like I think the reason that I'm critical of it is because I can see all of the areas where it's like, this would have been really great, but it just didn't quite get there. And I think that's the reason why a lot of the flaws in 16 stand out. Um, as it stands, it's, you know, I'll just say when I do my, you know, top five games of the year at the end of this year, this is not going to be in the top five, not close even. Um, it, it's a game that like I kept pushing through cause I wanted to see what was going on with the story uh, like the main story, I already said that that was a little bit disappointing. So there we go. Uh, but for newcomers to the series, it's not the worst place to start for people who like an action game, an action AAA game. Um, if you like all the spectacle and budget that comes with AAA games, and I am someone who likes that. I'm not saying that in a like disparaging way. I, I love a good like high spectacle, high budget AAA game. I love them. Uh, this is one of those. And like I said, at the top, this gave me a lot of the enjoyment that those games, those others give me too. So uh, just as it stands, it's it's mostly disappointing. Again, baby steps for them after the the galaxy brain disaster that 15 was, in my opinion, of a multimedia experiment that resulted in, in my opinion, a bad video game. This is not a bad video game. This is a complete package. It works. Everything they set out to do like they they put in this game. They're going to make DLC. I'm going to skip it. I'm not interested. I'll just say that. But uh, for everyone who did like it, that's cool. I mean, I'm, I'm always happy when people get what they want uh, from games. I would have loved to spend an hour and 47 minutes now 
praising the hell out of it, but that's just not where we ended up. But uh, enough of that. Let's get into some housekeeping before the spoiler section here. I mentioned at the top of the show that uh, Rick is the host of Pixel Project Radio Podcast and Eric is the host of the Unlockables Podcast. So I will give you guys the customary time to introduce your shows. And um, I'm taking a page from Rick's book here. Tell us an episode or two that you think are representative of your show that you would like people to check out. Uh, my name, like Dave said, my name is Eric. I host the Unlockables podcast, which I bill as the story of video games, the people who play them and the memories made along the way. Uh, if you want to follow me on all the good old socials, you can head over to linktr.ee forward slash Unlockables podcast. That's where all of the good stuff is. My Twitter, Instagram, all that fun stuff where you can find the show. Any of the various Twitter clones that we have now, because Twitter's demise, I'm sorry, Axe's demise may or may not be imminent. Right. I don't even know what's going on with that anymore. The ongoing but, uh, saga. Yeah. Yes. Um, if you're coming to my show for the first time, two episodes you definitely should check out is I had the pleasure of interviewing both Dave and Rick on my show, talking a little bit about their love of video games and, uh, you know, a little bit about the shows that they make. And those are two fantastic episodes. And then uh, if you want to hear me uh, talk about more big brained uh, Square Enix stuff, I have a Kingdom Hearts series where I'm playing the entire series. Uh, it's got like 11 episodes, 20 hours already. I'm I'm through the first four games. And that is a very, very, very comprehensive look at the series as a whole. So uh, if you're interested in hearing me ramble more about crazy square stuff, uh, that would be another good one to check out. So and I'll toss it over to Rick. Sure. I'll uh, I'll keep this short uh, so we can move on. I uh, I am the host of Pixel Project Radio. You can find us on whatever device uh, service that you use to listen to podcasts. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter, uh, Instagram and Blue Sky uh, we've uh, we we put out a couple of episodes each month where we try to do a mixture of broad game reviews as well as uh, more beat by beat book club style analysis. Uh, a couple of episodes that I would recommend to get a flavor of the show to see if you'd like to come back for seconds and maybe thirds would be, uh, well, why not introduce uh, yourself to the show by listening to the episode on Tony Hawk that Dave was a guest on. And uh, another great one would be the episode on Shredder's Revenge that we did, uh, TMNT Shredder's Revenge, on which Eric was a guest, along with another friend of the show, friend of all of our shows, Mikey Tabletop. Oh, yeah. I think those are two great ones. Uh, we've also got some Final Fantasy content. No 16, but uh, we do have some other stuff. I recommend checking those out, too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you've got episode, you had a, a solo episode on Pixel Project Radio about Final Fantasy X-2, that convinced me that, yes, actually, I should go back and play that. So I recommend people check that out. And Eric on the Unlockables has an entire episode about what is Final Fantasy, the series that keeps changing, trying to uh, nail down some of the uh, key through lines throughout that series. Spoiler alert, we arrived at no conclusion. <laughs> <laughs> Eric's also got a really good solo essay on Final Fantasy 16. Mm, stop. Like, not, for, not for nothing, but he does. Stop. Yeah, I skipped that because I didn't want to hear your opinions before we did this this episode. But tomorrow, when I'm uh, when I'm at work, I can finally listen to it. It's just my whole episode is just don't listen to Dave. Listen to me. That's right. It's actually it's a five second podcast. It's just uh, Dave's full of shit. But uh, the highest of recommendations for everyone to check out Pixel Project Radio and the Unlockables. There's a reason I keep inviting both of these guys back on the show for uh, many many guest appearances because they're good at what they do. You'll find links down in the show notes for both of those shows. And again, 
as I always say, I'm about to talk about myself for a minute now. So I, I recommend kind of like tuning me out and uh, going down and checking out Pixel Project Radio and the Unlockables. So uh, for Tales from the Backlog, I would love to have more people join the Discord server. Come and join the conversation about 16. Uh, as you know, there are lots of people in the server who played it. This seems to be a game that inspires big opinions. So come on in and chat about it this week. Uh, we would love to have you. There's an invite link down in the show notes. Also down in the show notes is a link to the Patreon where you can support monetarily if that is how you would like to show support to your favorite podcasters named Dave. Patreon.com slash Real Dave Jackson is the place. All patrons get the ability to vote in polls for what games I play on the show. Uh, they get some bonus episodes. And then as the tiers go up, you get more and more stuff. So I recommend checking that out. And as always, maybe as you're listening to the music before the spoiler break, or as you're finding your next podcast, if you want to dip out and avoid the spoilers, go leave a rating and review. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Podcast Addict, for Tales from the Backlog, The Unlockables, and Pixel Project Radio. That's right. I'm, I know it's a big ask, but do it for all three of us. It helps us get pushed up in the search results. It helps people find the shows. If I can make one big recommend, uh, sign up for the, the Tales from the Backlog Patreon, because if you do, at the highest level, you are invited on the annual Tales from the Backlog cruise that is fully paid for by <laughs> Dave. So I highly recommend signing up for the Patreon. Uh, they're, they're shutting down the cruise this year. There are too many health code violations oh, last year. Damn. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, 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 I evaded for as long as I could, but they we never me. found that one guy. No, unfortunately. never found him. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the last thing I promise this is the last thing I do another podcast. It's called a top three podcast. Um, it is top three lists and drafts of fun and goofy topics. It's more of a comedy show. Uh, if you want to hear me talk about things that are not video games, that's the place. So with all that being said, we're going to take a break. When we come back, the spoilers begin for Final Fantasy 16. Okay, I'm back with Rick and Eric, and we're talking full spoilers for Final Fantasy 16. This spoiler section is not a walk in chronological order through the story, so if you don't want to be spoiled on the entire thing, I recommend you uh, leave. Go, maybe go play the game, or yeah, just go, go, go listen to something else. Go, go on, get. Um, I, I didn't say in the beginning because I, I do think this is a big spoiler, even though it's like two hours into the game. But Joshua's death uh, really, really hooked me um, at the beginning, the kind of conclusion of the demo, the way that that was the way the demo ended with Joshua dying under mysterious circumstances. Again, Game of Thrones, episode one, right? Bran gets kicked out of the window. That's how episode one ends. And you're like, what the fuck? When is episode two? That's how I felt. Yeah, I think we all I think we all kind of played the demo around the same time when it came out. And yeah. It seemed to me like we all like arrived at that point around the same time because I remember when we cleared that demo, like everybody kind of jumped in Discord and we were messing each other and be like, holy shit, did you just play that yep. that intro? And <laughs> yeah, it sets up this 
ultimately you come to find out that that Clive is is Efreet. It's very clear that that's what's going on, and then he kills his brother Joshua. There's this cinematic fight between Efreet and the Phoenix, ending with the very very brutal murder of Joshua as as the Phoenix. And I think that kind of all took us like like people have died in Final Fantasy before, but I think in terms of like brutal Final Fantasy deaths, that's probably one of the one of the top ones for sure. Yeah. And that hooked. I remember everybody jumped into Discord and, and we were talking with everybody. We were like, oh, my God, like we cannot. This is setting up a game that could be incredible. And we were all so hooked. And we, you, you said it at the top of the episode that that demo was probably one of the the best demos that's ever been put out in terms of hooking people for the rest of the game. Yeah, the they definitely put their best foot forward yes. with that demo. I, I think the only other thing they maybe could have put in as a demo would be the Titan fight. Um, mm. But I, I think it was way smarter to do what they did because save progress carries over. And, you know, time. Time is, time is a resource. The most limited one, in fact. So I, I was really appreciative that I didn't have to replay those two hours, as great as they were, all over again. Mm-hmm. Did you guys think that Joshua was dead dead or did you think he was coming back? No, I, I, I don't mean to jump in Eric, but like I, I knew they were going to bring him back. It was like, I just expect it anymore. <laughs> like, and I'm not, I'm not necessarily saying that I wish he would have, they would have just killed him off, but like, it just seems to be a trend anymore. Like they kill somebody off for the emotions and then bring them back for the emotions. Like, man, I don't know. Ha- have some guts. Like, like take take some chances hurt hurt your readers and viewers and players feelings it's okay it, like, it's a lesson they didn't learn from game of thrones like important characters <laughs> die very early on in the run of game of thrones and they never fucking come back they're dead and you have to just deal with the fact that they're gone i will say again we're going to talk this up another tally on the side of dave did not see this coming that joshua is coming back i thought he was dead and then when he came back i was like very surprised he, he, you get hints way before they reunite that it's him that's back right but uh i didn't expect it we'll say that i think in terms of the symbology right he's the phoenix we probably should have seen it coming i didn't either just because the death was so shocking yeah and we should have expected they didn't take the lesson from game of thrones but they they sure took it from dragon ball and they had the dragon balls ready to bring him back so <laughs> um that that Again, I can't understate how like brutal that scene is. So I I, and so brutal. I thought it was the point where I was like and it kind of made sense, too, because as Joshua's shield bearer, uh, Clive got a part of his power as the Phoenix. That's what that's your first icon. You like that's what he was able to use. And I was like, oh, well, Clive is going to take the power of the Phoenix now because Joshua's dead. And that was kind of and it was just so shocking that I didn't ever conceive that he would become alive again because in all the marketing material, we only ever saw Joshua as a little kid. And I'm like, that mm-hmm. makes sense. Now he doesn't get any further than a little kid because he's, he's fucking dead. So yeah, did not see it coming. Oh man. He's the Phoenix. Of course he comes back. I didn't even think of that. That's I how didn't, I didn't until I watched a <laughs> video on it. And I was like, of course it makes sense. Right. Uh, well that plus the, the box art, like it, it features Ifrit and the Phoenix so prominently. Right, mm-hmm. I was like, you know, he's going to come back. I mean, I didn't know that he was going to come back as like an ally because they're fighting on the box art right. or at least on the, the deluxe box set. So I was like, you know, maybe I don't know, but yeah, I, I kind of figured the Phoenix was a pretty big giveaway. <laughs> <laughs> the second part of that question, 
did you ex- like because they kind of obscure the fact that it was Clive doing it during the, those opening hours when Joshua dies. And that's like a big reveal later that Clive has to click the two thumbsticks to accept the truth. Accept the truth. <laughs> uh, which there's a line later that I know Rick was like, come the fuck on later, much later in the game. But this part, well, that one and this one, this was too. the other These one. These are both yeah. the stinkers. Yeah. The the one later I was like, I was like, that's kind of cool. It's stupid, but it's kind of cool in the, mo-. this one I was like, come on, click the sticks to accept the truth. Really? <laughs> that's I, I love that. It, it's a button prompt. Yeah. You got to do it. Like you can't accept the truth if you don't click. Yeah. Exactly. This they is want you Clive. as the player to accept exactly. the truth as this well. Is, this is <laughs> the interactive medium of video games. You, the player, have to click the sticks to accept the truth. Um, did you guys see this coming, that it was Clive? Well, they kind of promoted like Clive as Ifrit throughout all the promotional materials. So, I I mean, I just went into it knowing that that, that was Clive. Okay. What, what threw me in the demo is we get that alternate POV when it's happening. Mm-hmm. And we see Ifrit like tearing the Phoenix's throat out. Yeah. Uh, and we hear Clive speaking. And the POV is is in, I think it's in grayscale. We hear Clive speaking. So I was like, okay, somehow maybe Clive isn't Ifrit, but then turns out he is. I, I, I don't know, man. It was weird that they like kind of promoted it in a way that made everybody think Clive was Ifrit and then pretended to say, uh <laughs> and then it turns out yeah I, I, it was weird i think i'm on i was on the same page with david and so i think when i saw that shocking because again you're right in in every single freaking piece of marketing they had was clive shouting come to me free like every single like how many times <laughs> did you see that clip and then he turns into a, a freak. So everyone's like, oh, yeah, obviously it's him. But like when the brutal death of the Phoenix happened, it was kind of when I was thrown off all my expectations. So I was like, oh, OK, maybe they are kind of throwing us off off the trail here. Maybe they're trying to pull like a switcheroo on us. But, you know, everyone has to accept the truth eventually. So, yeah. So I I typically go dark on games that I want to play. Um, I, I will not watch trailers especially not story trailers um so for this game they i watched the first reveal trailer that was at one of those big conferences and i was like okay this is the type of thing they're dealing with it's a darker world we see what clive and joshua look like and then i didn't watch anything else so this was surprising to me because like you said rick they did take it to a different viewpoint where you see the fight and it's it's very much you're not seeing it through clive's eyes anymore so that did work for me. Um, and I was forced to accept the truth, <laughs> accept the truth, Dave. Hey, since we're in the spoiler section, um, was that ever explained? Like why it was an alternate POV? Is it solely to make it a red herring or like, cause to this day, I, I don't know what that was. I don't, I don't know whose point of view it could have been. So I don't know. There were some people for a minute theorizing that it was Torgal's because it was black and white, oh. but I don't, I don't really buy that. Mm. Yeah. It's, it probably was more of like a red herring thing. Probably try to just, just throw you off, not make it super obvious. Yep. So yada, yada, yada. Clive is uh, joining up with Sid. I mean, I, I want to talk about the stuff that you're doing with Sid. Cause I think this is like the coolest stuff in the game where things are happening and you, you, 
you don't know what you're doing. You don't know what if what you're doing is right when Sid puts you on this quest to destroy the mother crystals, uh, which seemed like really cool. I was I was really into this um, the quest to destroy them, not knowing what would happen. Um, Sid kind of warns you that destroying the mother crystals will make bearers lives worse because, uh, people will stop, I guess, getting blessed with magic and people won't be born as bearers anymore. Uh, they don't do anything with this concept, which is disappointing, but that whole time as you're going through breaking the crystals and people's lives are getting appreciably worse as you're doing this, um, was really cool. I like this a lot. Again, early parts in the game before Sid dies. That's kind of where I found the parallel too to our world, right? Because people settle settle around these mother crystals and these mother crystals are the source of this power that make people's lives easier. They mine them for resources. They use the crystal. People that can't do magic use the mined crystals to like do magic and like perform everyday mundane tasks, right? And, you know, only a small subset of the people like follow Sid know that the mother crystals are actually draining the world and are the reason why the blight is happening, right? So... The, the main conflict there is like you're trying to destroy these things that are helpful, but ultimately harming the world in the long term and get people to accept, hey, I know these luxuries are making your life easier, but this is not good for the world overall. And I just kind of saw that again, our modern day struggle with trying to transition people away from technologies that hurt the planet. And there's a lot of resistance there because people don't want to because that's been their way of life for the whole time. So I saw that parallel there and that kind of again, that that story element like grabbed me but as we'll get to in a couple minutes in this spoiler section again once god comes into play all that's kind of just like whatever out the window you know this kind of brings up something now that we're in the spoiler section and we're talking about some of these mother crystals and their effects on the world and etc um this this kind of brings up the the atl and I, i did a quick search in the doc just to make sure that you didn't have a section to this dave and i i don't think you do unless i missed it how do we feel about the atl because I'm a, I'm very conflicted, and I remember in 13, uh, again, you know, talking about how 13 was kind of criticized, it was because it dumped so many of these proper nouns, concepts, and ideas that it expected you to go into the data log to read about them. And now this is doing the same thing, and I, I hear it getting praised a lot, but I'm not... I'm not convinced that I like it. I'm not sure. I what do you think? Um yeah, I had meant to like bring it up. I think Eric brought it up several times and kind of like brushed on what it is, so I didn't feel the need to like go into it deeper in the the non-spoiler part. Lord knows we talked enough before the spoiler break, but um I appreciated the fact that it's an easy way to get information about who is on the screen right now. Because if that's a criticism that was leveled at Game of Thrones, because that has so many characters, so many important characters, that for new people, um, they do throw a ton of people that are important at you. And part of the adjustment to that show is just who the fuck are these people and why should I care? So the fact that that's there helps you, you know, this person's on screen, they look important. Who are they? And I can just press one button and see, oh, they're the king of this country. Okay, I get it. So I like that. Um, That being said, I didn't read it a whole lot because once I knew that they were the king of that country, that's all the information it turned out I needed to know because a lot of those secondary characters are nothing more than their titles. You know, that that reminds me too. um, 
you know, thinking about 13, 13, you couldn't look at this stuff mid-scene. You had to go and look at it in the menu afterwards, um, and it was a lot of reading. In this one, you can look at it mid-scene, but it's still a fair amount of reading. I'm thinking to back to Pentiment, and Eric, I don't think you've played this, but Dave, I know you have. Mm-hmm. Um, they have a similar thing where you can, you know, press select to see a person that they're talking about or a historical event. And what I love about it is if it's a person, it just shows you their portrait, mm-hmm. like just reminding you who they are without like disrupting the flow too much. I don't know, because that's one thing that I realized here. Like I was grateful to have the resources so I could remember like, oh, OK, that's what this event is. Or uh, is this the duchy or is this the duchy? I can't remember. OK, there we go. Uh, but it did break up the flow a lot for me. Part of it, too, is like. And this kind of like gets us back on the story in the spoiler section. There's a lot of conversations between like, let's say the king of this country and the dominant that's there and like the queen. And then there's some other, their son or something like that. And I think you brought this up. Someone brought this up in the non-spoiler part, but this is a story about what Clive is doing and all of these other political machinations that are happening don't, ultimately don't matter. Nothing of importance comes from the actions of really anybody except for the family with Bahamut. And it's only because Ultima is involved with what they're doing. But like the movements of one country against another, and you get these like cutscenes, like between big story parts, they take you to this like, here's what's going on in the state of the world sections. And I was like, I don't care which army is moving into which section because it will never affect what's going on in the real story of the game. So you guys know me, I'm a noted lore junkie. That's why my Kingdom Hearts series is already 20 hours long. So I loved the ability to just be able to like pause the game and get more info on any scene that was happening at all. Mm -hmm. And it's not just the same info every time. So like anytime there's a development in the story, that character's like file will be updated with the relevant story information up until that point. So especially like you talked about uh, the early fight scene between uh, Titan and shiva i think it was and there was also like a scene before that where there were like eight people in this room and barnabas was there and you don't know what he's doing and benedict was there and titan was there so like three or four different players from like four different kingdoms were there and you just have like no idea what's going on they throw them all at you right away they don't stop to explain anything they're using words like dominant you're like what does that mean so i found myself like every three minutes during a cutscene, like pausing to see if there's any like updated lore and i think that allowed me to appreciate the world a little bit more. I know it's not everyone's cup of tea. And I think it gave me even more appreciation for that world. And even more like, man, there really is like a lot of like background lore built into this world. And if they would have stuck with that for more parts of the game and flesh it out more, I think it would have been a real home run. Sorry, I didn't mean to get us too off track. Oh, no, it's I okay. love active time lore. I, I'm a lore junkie, so I'll take more of that anytime I can get it. No, it's okay. Cause like what, it ultimately ties into with like my opinion about this kind of real world stakes or real world story at the beginning when you're destroying the mother crystals, like you, you can use the active lore and those interstitial kind of catch up cutscenes to let you know, like which country is moving where, because you know, the mother crystals are like creating the blight by draining life force or some shit from the world. Right. But when you break the mother crystals, it doesn't solve it the blight actually gets worse as you keep breaking mother crystals. So 
they they tell you what's going on like because the blight is spreading into this country here is how they're reacting now they're invading this country because their homeland is becoming you know blighted um but that knowledge that people are being affected by what you're doing is only important at that surface level i think i like the fact that when they go they're invading this country now what happens i don't know because i'm never going to go there and see it it doesn't affect clive's story because we're we're only following clive and i think that's like particularly relevant in this early half of the game when you're still dealing with all the real world players but like the stuff that everyone else is doing is functionally irrelevant it's all about what clive is doing people just move as a result of what clive does i do think that that's cool that as you're breaking mother crystals you are seeing the consequences of that like you're not saving people's lives in the immediate by doing this and people are rightfully mad at you i think after you break the first mother crystal you meet a bunch of bearers that are directly affected by it and they're like bro you made our lives so much worse the fuck's wrong with you and i thought that was a cool touch unfortunately just a touch i would agree yeah yeah well said okay thank you um i mentioned that sid dies this is a big moment uh, in the game sid dies during a uh, a fight um during a kind of breaking of a mother crystal um, after he dies, Clive takes on the moniker of Sid. Uh, to my knowledge, this is the only time Sid has ever been a title and not like a, the name of a character in the series. Um, and I thought it's an interesting concept that like Sid and what Sid is working for is not just like one person. Um, and actually in this game, Sid is doing more than most Final Fantasy games. Uh Sid is just an old man in Final Fantasy VI. Sid is the pilot of a ship in Final Fantasy X. They don't, there's not a whole lot to them as people. Um, I, I think that drastically like reducing the party size, giving Sid a lot more character, and then having him die and that title be passed on is an interesting thing that this game does. And let me ask you guys this. Did you guys see Sid's death coming? Was that obvious to everybody? No, I, I mean, I never see anything coming. So, no, <laughs> I, I knew they were going to do that to somebody. I wasn't sure like who it would be, but, you know, y- y- you've always got to kill off one of the main cast because, you know. Yeah, absolutely. emotions. <laughs> I, I think I saw I think I knew something was going to happen because the interesting thing about Sid's character is you find out that he's the dominant of, of, of Thunder or he's. He's Rama's dominant or Ramu or however you, however you want to say it. I don't know. Uh, I've always said Rama, but, and anytime he uses that power, he's like coughing up blood. So you obviously yeah. see like the negative effects of like relying on that power too much, which I also think, oh, right. which I also think is like a really interesting wrinkle into, into the world that doesn't really get explained on much more. I mean, we talk about how like once the bears use too much magic, they petrify. But that gets touched on like very late in the game and doesn't really it, it's just kind of like one it, like, oh, yeah, by the way, if you use too much magic, this happens. Whereas like, yeah, Sid is straight up coughing up blood every time he like uses lightning. Um, So I figured something would happen to him. But I think it's it, it serves to propel Clive's character forward, which is like what everything does in this game. Right. And that ultimately propels him. Yeah. To like devoting himself to Sid's cause. It's it's like a hero's journey thing. Cli- yeah. uh, Sid is the mentor, and then eventually Clive has to leave the uh, leave the mentor and do it by himself. And right. it's 
I guess it should have been predictable. I'm just extremely not ever paying attention enough to find a twist coming or like I don't I don't ever see them coming. I'm glad you brought up the bearer's curse because I, I wanted to talk about this. This was a cool wrinkle that they introduced. The fact that bearers turn to stone, it is a horrifyingly painful death that apparently there's nothing you can do to like soothe them. They just they just die in the most painful way possible. They kind of introduce that like this is going to happen to Sid, but then he dies before it can ever become like a real point of conflict in his story. And then 30 hours go by without mention of the bearer's curse, <laughs> even though you're constantly using magic and same thing with Jill. Jill's with you. She's using magic. And then at the very end, it's like, oh, Clive's arm turns to stone as he tries to, you know, summon magic one final time. Uh, big missed opportunity, I think, for some real stakes to what's happening. Yeah, I agree. I thought for a long time that, um, you know, Jill is always wearing a glove, a long glove. Mm-hmm. I, for a long time, thought that she was already uh, atrophying and that was going to be a plot point. But then we see see her naked on a beach and we learn that that's not the case yep the scene everybody was waiting for Uh, yeah now that it's (laughs) now that it's come up this also uh completely blindsided me the fact that they would get together i thought wait really yeah i felt like they kind of been setting it up from from the start for sure or do you mean get together or like 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 do it yeah both both yeah completely blindsided me the fact that they've known each other for a long time is the most connection i felt like they had I didn't feel like there was chemistry between the two of them. Jill, they just, they reunited. They were happy to see each other, but I didn't detect any hint of budding romance between the two. It's not like Titus and Yuna. I think it might come back to, they just kind of wrote Jill's character to be in total subservience to Clive. Yeah. And not like, not, not like subservient, like a, like a maid or a slave or something, but like, yeah. Like her whole character is just, I want what's best for Clive because that's what Clive wants. And I like Clive. So I, I don't know. I just kind of figured sooner or later it was going to happen. And one interesting thing about their relationship too, is that we talk about them being naked on the, on the beach and, you know, finally having that moment, uh, which, you know, I think it's, I think it's a beautiful moment and, you know, they're obviously going for a more mature tone. So they want to show that it's not the first time they've shown, people doing it in this game we've got, we got a couple scenes of 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 that happening so um but i just the, the most shocking thing to me is after we have sid's death we have a five-year time skip right and if they had like feelings for each other and they are working alongside each other for like those five years you figured like something would have happened already yes and not just been like f- like friend zone for five years like i've i've been friend zone before but i've never stayed in the friend zone for five years that's a that's a long time <laughs> <laughs> That's a really good point. They come back after five years and they're still doing this kind of like will they won't they yeah. thing. And it's just it's really hard to believe that their relationship as people wouldn't have evolved in five years. They're still at the exact same place. Especially they did have feelings for each other. So I, I didn't detect any hint of will they won't they with Jill and Clive. It was just they were in scenes together. But like I yeah yeah I've 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 said what I need to say. Um, I think Rick, you're right. It, it is, it is the fact that like Jill, aside from one scene where she kind of goes, uh, fucking medieval on the person who was like tormenting her before, aside from that, she doesn't do much and she doesn't get the spotlight. She, we never really see what's going on in her head. She's very quiet in a lot of scenes. 
like you said, never any objection to anything that's going on. She's just, again, sports term, a warm body to fill a role. Uh, <laughs> so, um, a- after, uh, after Jill passes on her icon to Clive also, there's a weird scene where Joshua blows up on Clive for like taking advantage of her. Really fucking stupid. Made no sense at all. And and the reason they kind of sideline her towards the end, and, and I agree with you, I th- I'm a little bit higher on Jill just because she does have that like, they go to the Iron Kingdom where she was captured and, and when they found out that she was Shiva and they, they kind of abused her and the people of the Iron Kingdom are very like fanatical and they abuse their dominance and so when they go there to destroy the mother crystal, she does kind of get like, there's this arc there where she like tells Clive, I have to confront my past trauma. And like, they give her the time and the ability to do that, which I was like, that's really cool. Cause we just went through that whole arc with Clive and he got to accept the truth. So like Jill should get to accept the truth. That's only fair. Right. Uh, and then it kind of does fall off from there where she basically gets benched at the end for Clive, Dion and Joshua to like go save the day and have like a boys trip. Where I was like, she was so important to like Clive as a person, like she should have been there in the end with with him. And when she does, when he Clive does take her icon powers, right? Like it's implied that she can't use them anymore. Like Clive took them from her. But we have instances where when Clive fought uh, Hugo Kuka, I think he took his power before he killed him, and he was still able to use his icon powers. And same mm-hmm. thing with with Dion when he fought Bahamut. He took Bahamut's powers, but Dion was still able to transform later in the game. So it's like that whole thing. I wasn't super consistent where it's like, well, why would Jill be the only one that is not able to use her icon powers? And same thing with Benedicta when he took Gerudo from her and then she transformed and freaked out. So it's like, yeah, it wasn't a lot of consistency there in terms of like how that worked with Clive's powers, except that he was mythos. 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 <laughs> yeah. All, all told, I, I think that. I think that Jill is one of the weakest main player characters in a Final Fantasy game that I've played that has, you know, main players that are supposed to have good characterization. I'm not not talking about your party in Final Fantasy 1 or something like that. We can at least say she's still better than Amerant. Yes. That's something, and, I guess. Probably better than Waka if we're making a tier list. <laughs> Ooh, hard disagree. Uh, how racist is Jill? Where where does she land on that spectrum? Is she Oh, I He's still a good I, character, I know, I know. though. Is she <laughs> higher or lower than Amaranth is the question. She's got to be higher. Oh, Jill? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, she's definitely higher. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I, I think the last part about like this kind of low level plot uh, that I think is really great is after you destroy the last crystal, you're, you're kind of wondering like what's going to happen. Are things actually going to get better? And they get way fucking worse after you destroy the last crystal. And I kind of mentioned this before, but... um. The blight gets much worse. Uh, magic is like gone. People's lives are like, I get the feeling that there's a bunch of people who like can't make a fire anymore because they don't have magic crystals and shit like that. But the game from a color perspective gets darker and like the color drains out of the world and the music gets a lot more somber. And I think like this was a really cool artistic choice that really like hammers home. Like you have taken people's lives, people's livelihoods uh, away from them. And you talk to people and well, you talk to people for a little bit and see how bad their lives are. Uh, you eventually stop caring about the lives of the people because you have to <laughs> deal with mythos. But um, visually and from a music perspective, I think it it does a lot of the work to uh, to sell that. 
Similar thing in two, like Final Fantasy IX, when you're approaching the climax of that game, like the world becomes covered in mist again. And even like the map is more foggy. The music's more somber. So it does that similar kind of not exactly the same. It's not a one to one. But no, I agree with you. Yeah. After you destroy the last Mother Crystal and you're like at the conclusion of the game, like it genu- I would genuinely like not want to be outside or even in that world because it just looks like it's like it sucks. Like just like. When the, if you're a normal person in the world and the, and the color shade turns, that's when you're just like, oh, things are not great right now. <laughs> I wonder, like, so if if this like encroachment of the blight and you destroying the mother crystals and like causing short term inconvenience to people in order to help the world, basically, is what you believe is going to happen. Um, it, you know, if we're making that an analog to global warming and, you know, the the ask of people because that's who gets asked to, and I, I am, will make it political. Not that this is controversial, but like the people who can make change as far as global warming goes are not the people who are being asked to make change. Uh, they put that shit on all of us to say like, no, Dave, the fact that you run your air conditioner four months out of the year, that's that's the reason. It's not uh, Taylor Swift's private jet and shit like that. You don't recycle your water bottles, Dave. I do recycle my fucking water <laughs> bottles. And they throw them in the dump with all the rest of the trash because the city of Columbus is is a piece of shit. Um, anyway, this is a, a thing. They could have done so much with this because I, I do think this is an analog that they were going for. The fact that they're asking people to make have they're asking people to endure short term inconvenience to better the world. And Clive is like the the face of, you know, taking all the shit from the people, just saying like, you have to trust me, this will be worth it. And then it's not worth it. It makes the world way worse. And then it's just, (laughs) they don't do it. Clive never faces that. You don't see how anyone faces it. After you beat Ultima and save the, save the world, basically, you never see the result of what you did. You never see how people are going to live their lives after all of this. I don't even know if he did make things better in term. We can get to that in a second, because I think that ties into the end and you can interpret the end in two ways, really, I think so. Um, But yeah, just to kind of tie this along, since we are talking about the big bad Ultima, what did you guys in in terms of like the pantheon of Final Fantasy villains? How did you guys feel about Ultima? Actually, before we get there, Rick, do you have anything about the the kind of non closure about like that? making the world worse and never seeing how people go. Cause then we'll move on to Ultima if you do. And if not, we'll just cut this and answer the question. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I, I, I do wish that we got to see more of those consequences, but I, I, I gotta be honest at that point in the story, I was, I, I was kind of checked out. So <laughs> I, and I feel bad for saying that, but yeah, I, I do wish that we could have seen more. We don't care at that point because we're just trying to kill God. Yeah. No, the people don't matter. I was hoping that we would go back and see more of this stuff because I thought that this was really interesting when, you know, we're making people's lives worse. But it all goes out the window once Ultima really makes an appearance. I don't know how you guys feel. 
Ultima is an interchangeable JRPG villain. To me, there, there's nothing about Ultima that tells me that it couldn't have been swapped out of this game and replaced with another look-alike with the same motivations that I've seen in several other stories like this. And that's why this was... That's why this increase in scope was so unsatisfying is because like I've played games with an Ultima figure before and frankly in a lot of other games they were more interesting than Ultima is yeah I I kind of wish that they would have just stuck with um oh shoot what's her name Annabelle Annabella yeah, Clive's Clive's mom. Mom. oh okay yeah yeah I don't remember yeah, which she, one her name yeah, is she sucked yeah yeah I I really thought that they were going to lean on to her to be like a political enemy right and drive the force and even if there was like a some kind of a higher being you know they were setting her up to be a cipher for it or a vessel for it uh but that's not really the case i think like where it kind of just ended was she happened to be a horrible person and at one point ultima took advantage of that i i I think ultima is super forgettable yep uh not not a compelling villain at all and clive's mom like you said could have been the source of a lot of conflict and conversation and reflection like moments between clive and joshua because like they properly reunite they get to give each other a hug and then like five minutes later their mom realizes that she's been a total piece of shit for no real reason and she kills herself and no one ever talks about it again well somebody brought up a really cool point on that it's it's that like she was running all this time Mm -hmm. and she she fundamentally cannot admit that she was wrong so when when she's faced with the proof that that she uh that that she is wrong she rather than admit it she you know she takes her own life yeah um kind of interesting that whole scene like brought out a new dynamic where she was like why it should have been you why wasn't it you she was so bitter and resentful <laughs> for reasons that we didn't know yeah you know like like she wanted the dominant of the phoenix to be with clive because Joshua was kind of like a sniveling little boy, and Clive was the one that was getting all of the the war honors. Clive was the firstborn in this like yeah. medieval yes. well, yeah, fantasy that t- thing. That yeah. too. So it opened up this whole new picture, and, and it's just never explored. You saying that made me laugh because I just remembered the movie Walk Hard. If you guys have ever seen that, yeah. where they're just like wrong <laughs> yeah. kid died. So what you're saying is that before she killed herself, and maybe she could have avoided killing herself if she just accepted the truth. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, she didn't have that exactly. button push though. She didn't get that no. opportunity. She's not holding a controller. <laughs> no, in terms of, I think yeah, in in classic Final Fantasy kind of JRPG fashion, right? We we come to the point where we discover that Ultima is really the one kind of pulling the strings, and I wouldn't quote unquote call him God, right? But he is some kind of like extra dimensional being, which is who is essentially responsible for the creation of this world and kind of everything that's going on in it. And his main motivation is like, he's trying to restore the world to what it formerly was because his race of people like destroyed it. That was based on my understanding. But yeah, in terms of like his delivery and his motivations and stuff, like when you stack him up against the final fantasy greats, like, like Kefka and, and Sephiroth and um, I'm not high, as highly thought of, but I think, I think Kuja is a very compelling villain uh, with his motivations. Like, those are all feel like they're characters that have like flaws and, and reasons and motivations. And Ultima just feels like this very like big, bad, like kind of boogeyman, like I must restore the world and you are my vessel. And like, that's really his only motivation. So, 
Uh, I think Final Fantasy games are better when they have a really, really compelling villain that has motivation. And this is Ultima doesn't he doesn't fit the bill, really. And so, like, if anyone's listening along and they they don't know what's going on with Ultima, Ultima wants Clive, um, as I understand it, Clive has the ability to be to take in the power of all of the icons, which is not something that most people can do. So Clive makes this perfect vessel for Ultima. That's where I kind of lost attention. I stopped really caring. Um, either of you guys remember, like, what is it that Ultima hopes to achieve by using Clive as a vessel? Ultima ultimately... <laughs> Ultima... Jeez, <laughs> that's a mouthful. <laughs> Ultima ultimately... Um, you know, the Ultima that we see is just one of many of of himself. That's why they refer to... That's why he refers to himself collectively, like we. Um, and we could, we see that at the end when one of the Ultimas bursts out of Joshua's chest like alien style. Mm-hmm. Um, so my understanding was that Cly- he had to pull the strings to get Clive to power up, get, absorb all of the icons so that all of the Ultimas could return together and take Clive and just sort of turn into an ultimate being. That's... I, I that's as far I think that's right I think it's because he was able to also channel all the power of the icons that they needed that power to like cast whatever spell he was going to cast to like reset the world and, and save it basically oh, yeah. I think right. that was kind of yes. what the point was but it's not it's not described very well that's right because this this second part this higher scope part I think makes an attempt to like take the theme of the earlier stuff with the bearers and um, the, the, the theme of free will versus like a determined fate, um, and graduate that up to these bigger stakes. Like we're taking that same thing, except now it's not the bearers who are, uh, hoping to be given the choice to live their lives the way they want to. Now we're expanding it to like this world of Valisthea has free will. And therefore you can't make these decisions for us and reset this world and stuff. And it's just, it's just not interesting at this much bigger scale because we've all been here so many times before and ultima ultima as a character does not have the magnetic personality that i think it would take for me to care more about what ultima wants the way they they talk super monotone all very matter of fact and stuff like that it it's what makes like sephiroth and kefka and fuck even seymour uh more compelling as villains because like you know you feel like you you can relate to them a little bit but uh, ultima is just this monotone deity figure yes we're going to reset the world none of your puny lives matter that stuff the same stuff that was at that lower scale and it's just at the bigger scale i just don't care anymore again because we've been here well, I could I could tell you, Dave, that, you know, Ultima ultimately being an extra dimensional being that could like step outside the dimensions of the world. Right. Remember what other game we played this year that had extra dimensional beings outside the world that were interfering in the various Final Fantasy worlds. Correct. That's right. Yeah. Stranger of Paradise. So, so Jack DLC incoming. It could be. Are they setting us up, like I said, to <laughs> unite all of these Square Enix universes into this one shared multiverse where we kind of get, can we get the Avengers of Final Fantasy? Can we get Jack and Sora on the same team? Can it happen? <laughs> this kind of just backs up my theory. It's the same type of thing. And I can, I'm curious, too, how many versions of Ultimo there were. Because there, were there one version for like each Final Fantasy world? I'd have to go back and count. But there's a lot of interesting stuff there. 
there were 16 i think because because i i remember it being like 16 like oh like the yeah. game so but one for each final fantasy the, world interesting maybe maybe <laughs> <laughs> that second half of the game is where they start to get really sloppy with all of the uh like allegories that they're trying to add into like with the mythos and logos and uh, i don't know i it, it really doesn't work imo um can you enlighten a little bit about like what are they attempting like i i did not do the research of what those words mean about like yes w- yeah I, what 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 are they trying or what are they alluding to so so i'll preface by saying if somebody is more uh, if somebody knows more about these concepts than I do and you think that I'm just not getting something, please tell me because that very well could be the case. But um, mythos and logos are uh, they were pre-modern ways of thought where mythos is myth, right? It, it uh, seeks to reveal truths about the universe and logos was the more logical way of thinking, seeking to uh, expand knowledge. And these weren't seen as... Uh, in conflict, they were seen as complementary. It, it not dissimilar to like the yin and the yang, right? The the universal balance of the masculine, the fem- feminine, the good and the evil. Um, interestingly, logos was also how Christ was referred to in the Bi- in s- some areas of the Bible. Interesting, <laughs> even still, is we have this motif of the phoenix that rises from the ashes in Joshua. Joshua is a derivation of the name Yeshua, which is God. So we have all of these things playing together. And ultimately what I think it comes down to is it's more, they're just referencing these things and they're not actually using them in a way that supports any kind of grand narrative or thematic idea, um, which is fine. Like other games reference things like this, but this is a focus, like a heavy focus. And for a heavy focus to be like a wink at the player, uh, I, I, I just don't like that. And there are arguments to be, to be made here, right? You could say, well, you know, when he accepts the truth, you know, he's accepting that he's both mythos and logos, like working together in harmony. Maybe, but, you know, when at the very end, it, we and we should say, logos is introduced literally within the last hour of the game. Everybody's calling Clive mythos all throughout. Clive is the one that is uh, revealing powers, revealing truth of the universe. Okay, fine, whatever. Um, ultimately, at the very end, when Clive is demonstrating his free will, uh, says, oh, this isn't mythos, this is logos. And now suddenly we're it's making it seem like logos is overpowering mythos, which is like saying, oh, the yang is overpowering the, the yin. It just it doesn't <laughs> make sense. You know, it, it's I, I just I and again, I could be missing something. And if somebody knows about this more than me, please tell me because I'm interested in learning this because there are. There are religious allegories and references and symbols in everything, whether you believe them or or not. And I want to know. <laughs> mm-hmm. But like to me, this just it just doesn't feel like it's gelling. It, it feels like something that I would have done in like undergrad and like thrown a bunch of references into a story without really knowing the source material. I don't know. That's just I, I am just a nobody with with a microphone. <laughs> A nobody who did the research, at least, because I, I I heard those names and I was like, I don't care what the name Mythos, uh, where that comes from. That is the name of this character. I'm still perplexed as to why they pronounce it the way that they do. Mythos, Mythos. Yeah, I don't think Barnabas's voice actor did it any any favors. So no, 
yeah, I, I, I don't know. That's just like my whole thing. And then towards the end too, like, again, we talked, I, I mentioned early on, this was all about Clive was finding his strength in his friends. That was kind of why he was, he absorbed Jill's power. That's why he was talking about the importance of him and Joshua being reunited. All of this, like, you know, I'm, I'm with my, my people. And then he just goes on to do it himself. His, his friends are not his power. He should take a, a page out of Sora's book. <laughs> step, into, step into Sora's big shoes. He, he does. Um, I mean, they do have that stuff where he, he and Joshua combine powers to make the, the mega Phoenix or whatever the fuck they, they call it. Which is super fucking cool. <laughs> yeah, it, it's really cool. That was one of those times when I was playing and I was like, holy shit, when you're fighting Bahamut in space, I was like, this is awesome. The coolest, <laughs> this is what I want. But he does go in with Joshua. Joshua, um, after Joshua dies, I guess, Clive goes on by himself, but they they do combine forces. But I think you are right. Like in the grand scheme of things, this is not a story about Clive and Joshua and Jill and the rest of the gang. It's a story about Clive. Joshua helps out when he comes back, but Joshua's like, sickly having um for what he can't use his powers the way everyone else can as much as he would like to so he sits out a lot of it and it's just kind of like a rotating cast of who's helping clive this time we didn't talk about how torgal is uh not helpful that's the inclusion <laughs> of like the torgal commands in combat i know this is a total side side thing here but um they sucked they're really bad uh set Torgal on auto and just watch him do little uh, hamster wheel spins, which was funny. Yeah, I'll be honest. I threw that automatic Torgal ring on and just kept it the whole yep. game. But I mean, yep. you got to respect him staying by your side when you're literally transforming into elemental gods, though. I mean, like what other... And he himself transforms into one, yes. too. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. he's like, hey, I'm here for you. I don't care that we're fighting a mountain, like, whatever. Yep. His side quest was really nice. Yes, both of it them. was. There's the one side quest where it's like, what's wrong with Torgal? Because he's not eating, right? Is that the one you're talking about? Well, that's the one where he just needs more meat because he's a growing boy. Yeah. But then there's another one after that where you learn like the whole time that Clive uh, was away, Torgal was like at the places that they grew up, like just waiting for him. He brought back all of Clive's memory. Mem- Jeez, I, I hate this word. Memorabilia. Um, it's it's just very touching. Kind of like uh, Fry's dog in Futurama, like that mm-hmm. kind of uh, emotional hit gotcha yeah i skipped that because i got i got burned by the earl- the earlier one it was like what's wrong with torgal there's something wrong with torgal and it was like right after torgal had done his transformation for the first time and it was like what's wrong with torgal you need to go find him a special bone and then you do it and he's fine and i was like giant waste of time i'm not doing any more of this mm-hmm. I, th- I think dave too if i could just touch back on one thing and we can kind of wrap it up here because i'm sure of course yeah going a while here you know, I think a lot of the criticisms we put towards this game are are founded, but now that we're in the spoiler section, I can go, and you, you just mentioned it. I think this game peaked for me at that Bahamut fight, right? Because, like, when I started that fight, all my logical thought went out the window because I'm just like, holy shit, I'm fighting Bahamut in space, and this is like a fucking 20-minute fight, and I'm like, this is everything I could possibly ever want. This is, like... All my objective analysis and criticism went out the window because I'm just like, this is why I play video games. It's to fucking fight Bahamut in outer space after a long day at work. Like, I'm not I'm not here for any of this other stuff. Like, give me give me that. And that was 
what cemented my love for this game. So I, and we didn't even touch on it that much, but like every single, uh, icon fight pretty much is, is at that level of hype where it's just like they keep getting higher and higher. So if you want to like hang your head on anything and like are looking for a reason to play this game, like that alone, Bahamut in space is my, is my sales pitch to you. That was cool. Um, yeah, I, I was, I agree totally about that. Um, I was very disappointed that you don't get to fight Odin. The Barnabas fight was uh, a real letdown, um, especially cause you, you fight him once and he kicks your ass, um, in classic JRPG fashion. And then you fight him again. He never uses Odin in the fight where you can actually fight against him and a uh, big disappointment. Mm-hmm. But I, I agree. A lot of the other icon fights were great. Um, to wrap this up, basically at the end, uh, you beat Ultima because of course you do. Uh, I don't really, um, I get, like I said, give me six months. I won't remember anything about the f- ending against Ultima. The thing that I will remember is that Clive dies at the end. Uh, he uses all of his remaining power, uh, that bearer's curse comes back. And then, uh, Joshua also dies when Ultima bursts out of his chest, <laughs> like we said before. And then you find at the end, there's a book called Final Fantasy. Oh, also during the Ultima fight, there's the the line. Uh, Rick, do you want to say the line? <laughs> <laughs> I, sh- I, I sure don't. I, I actually don't remember it uh, completely. Eric, do you remember it? Because no, I, do. I don't. Oh, the only final, the only fantasy is yours, and it's your final one or something like that. <laughs> and when he's saying a two Ultima at the end, roll credits for the entire forty year series. Just roll yeah. it. I I literally <laughs> thought that was like a hard drive thing or like the onion or something yeah i i couldn't believe it was real oh did you see it before you came across it in the game oh yeah i think the first time that i posted it <laughs> and you were like okay that is lame but like it was kind of cool in the moment i yeah. i thought it was fake there until you <laughs> oh. said that and then when you said that i was like oh my god is this real yeah in, in the moment i was like okay but you know looking back <laughs> on it, i'm like how fan servicey do you want to be and then at the very end, uh, there's a book called Final Fantasy that was written by Joshua. How did he write a book? I don't know. There, there are some people speculating that the whole story was just a book itself, like a like a, a tale, a fairy tale, right. like Adam Sandler and Click, like is a whole yeah. book. Would would have been <laughs> fine if it was presented as like a framing device for the story, but they never showed anything that would right. suggest that before. It can't touch the cinematic masterpiece of Adam Sandler's magnum opus click. Yeah. <laughs> right. But the, the other thing too, it's like, we should probably suspect that Joshua probably survived that fight because he survived once before and he is the Phoenix. So I would assume that, you know, the prevailing theory is that he survived, he wrote the book and now these kids are living in this world where there's no magic and they're like rebuilding the world. So yeah, you, you can't sell me emotional deaths for a character if they're effectively immortal. Like, once again, fool me once, shame on me. Fool me twice, we, we we won't get fooled again. I did not expect George W. Bush to make an appearance in this uh, this episode, <laughs> but I, I love it. Um, yeah, I I do like the ending. That I guess we do see um at some undetermined point in the future that they are living in a world where magic is a fairy tale, um, and that's I I like that as a setup for a story like Final Fantasy VI where magic is extinct uh, as far as we know until you start using magic 15 minutes into the game. But <laughs> that's a whole other thing. 
Guys, thank you for joining for this, uh, what has become a mammoth episode of Tales from the Backlog. I kind of expected it because we have just so many things to say about Final Fantasy 16, but I appreciate you guys taking the time nonetheless. Dave, it's always a pleasure. Rick, it's always a pleasure. I love your guys' show, so any chance I get to come on and podcast with you guys is always, always a great time. Yeah, here, here. I couldn't, couldn't have said it any better. Yep. Doing three-hour podcasts about Final Fantasy games is merely an excuse to talk to the both of you. So I appreciate (laughs) it, guys. We'll give the recommendation again at the end of the show here for everyone listening to check out the Unlockables podcast, check out Pixel Project Radio, and um, I I don't know. Be nice to everybody. I I set that up where I was going to say a third thing, and I don't know. So next time you go out to eat, leave a good tip. We'll, We'll just say that. Yeah, check out those shows. Again, links down in the show notes and tune in next week for the next game to come out of the backlog.